Previously on Pratchett 9 and 13. Truckers, or if it was a Simon and Garfunkel song, the Gnomewood Bounders. Thousands of tiny gnomes who live under the floorboards of a large department store. Their whole world is to be demolished. It's up to Masklin, one of the outside gnomes, to devise a daring escape plan. Stealing a lorry and going outside the store <laughs> is one thing. Well, can't be done, but <laughs> we'll do it anyway. Stop, I'm going to need a whole lot of stop. The gnomes have found somewhere to live. And it rhymes with lorry. But Masklin's not happy because he feels like this is just another temporary. Solution. They recognise the name of Grandson Richard, comma 39. You know, he's launching this satellite. This is where Maslin gets the idea of maybe we could get on it, go up into space, and we could contact our spaceship. And then he essentially recruits Angelo and Gerda, so the Abbot and Angelo, who was the most adventurous of the gnomes, and then they sort of go off to the airport and get started on this separate adventure. Flux. I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're talking about the third book of the Bromeliad, Wings, or Fly Away Gnome, as it may better be known. And our guest is academic and author Dr. Lily Wilkinson. Welcome, Lily. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Oh, it's lovely to have you. You've been reading Pratchett for a long time. I have, yeah. Um, Truckers was my first Terry Pratchett book. I reckon I was maybe nine years old. And my mum bought me the cassette audiobook of, the, of Truckers, read by Tony Robinson. Uh, and I just loved it and then went and got the other ones out from the library. And I think I didn't then move on to Discworld until I was a little bit older, um, but certainly throughout high school it was all like my jam. Yeah. And have you ever returned to the Bromeliad before now? No, not until now, um, and I've just gone back. Wow. I feel I feel like we've we've prompted a, a return to youth and, and innocence. Yeah, and kind of a little bit of existential crisis that I wasn't expecting. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, well, I'm, I'm very interested to hear about that, <laughs> as I'm sure are our listeners. It is very deep themes, isn't it? Yeah. I think we talked about this in the first two books. Like, that's one of the great things about his kids' writing is he doesn't shy away from the big stuff. I mean, in, in Dodger, you've got all kinds of stuff going on in there that you're like, well, wow, you probably wouldn't see this in a, a YA novel written today. Well, actually, no, that's not true. You probably would now. But I think when he was doing it, it mm. was still, you know, particularly at the time he was writing Truckers and Diggers and Wings, it's like people weren't writing about this stuff for kids the way he was. Yeah, there's, mm. there's yeah, a lot of really deep existential angst in this book that I, I just was not expecting. Yeah. And a lot of swipes at society, like yeah. a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And I think kids kids pick that stuff up, you know. Mm. I think we a lot of people don't give them enough credit they do pick up those messages about what's going on in the world and what's wrong with it i mean man i remember so many drawings that kids were doing in workshops i was running about donald trump exploding the world <laughs> it was very oh anyway let's let's not talk about that mm. let's talk about happy things like existential dread yay <laughs> for gnomes and as always as we get into the book uh we like to start by reading the blurb it wasn't a thing it was a bit of shaped sky Somewhere in a place so far up there is no down, a ship is waiting to take the gnomes home, back to wherever they came from. And one gnome, 
Masklin, knows that they've got to try and contact this ship. It means going to Florida, wherever that is, then getting to the launch of a communications satellite, whatever that is, a ridiculous plan. Impossible. But Masklin doesn't know this, so he tries to do it anyway. And the first step is to try and hitch a ride on a new kind of truck. A truck with wings. Concord. Yeah, now that's, it's, it's, I, I just, that seems like a running theme through the books. Like, this is impossible. We can't possibly do it. We're doing it anyway, uh, which I, I love about these books. I think that's a very kind of pratchety idea, really, of doing something impossible and then do, doing it anyway. Yeah. Million to one chance. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and as we discussed previously, um, and I don't know, do we need to say this? Is anybody listening to this without having listened to episodes 9 and 13 of Pratt Chat? This is more, mostly a direct sequel to the first book because mm. the story splits off into two. But there is a little bit of stuff that happens at the start of uh, Diggers that kind of is is important. Um, but there's not really much. Like Masculine and um, Grimmer have that one conversation. Mm. And then he's like, well, we're off to the... Airport. <laughs> Not that they know that that's what it's called. Uh, and this this just sort of gets straight into it. Um, although very cinematic at the start uh, with the whole framing and the zooming in. Yeah, that, that kind of zoom in. And particularly the way that at the end sort of it ends with a click. And that kind of made me feel quite voyeuristic. That sort of mm. zooming in and looking and focusing and focusing. And then at the end there was this click and it kind of felt, I don't know, that to me felt like a really human thing that we were doing, discovering is it as though they're on the ship? Like, is that what that is? Like, it's alluding to later how when they're in the sky, they're trying to find where they are. So you're sort of focusing down on a map. Yeah. Focus, focus, focus. Like, mm. that's, is that? Yeah, I guess so. And that, that then makes it a little bit less creepy, I suppose, and makes it a bit more hopeful of, of searching the world to find gnomes. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about it like that, but that does make a lot of sense. I was weirded out by the fact that there's a click at the end because mm. I was imagining a, a movie camera. Yes. And then, and then it's like a still image camera. So I thought that was a bit interesting. So maybe it's like it felt like a spy satellite or something. Yeah. Mm. yeah but I like I like your interpretation better, Liz. That's that's good. Mm, same. Mm. But they uh, they get into the airport fairly easily, but then they're not really sure where to go or what they're doing. And then this sort of sets up the situation where Masculine talks to the thing all the time in this book. And yeah, it's, it's the thing a, is so great in this book. Oh yeah, yeah. I love it. I love so it. So sassy. Yeah. And, and it makes puns. It does. Yeah. At were least you, one. Were you proud, Liz? I was so proud. I'm like, why am I relating to the machine most of all? <laughs> well, it's, got, it's kind of got the most uh, changed personality. Mm. Mm, definitely. Yeah. And it's very different to in Truckers where the thing is very grave most of the time, um, very serious. And, uh, you know, it's occasionally got some lighter moments, but uh, also it's very like, I'll talk to you when the time is right. Like, it's basically like, go off and do this by yourself. Um, whereas now Masculine's basically like, help us. And the thing's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> it does do it a threaten. But <laughs> oh, yeah, well, that's yeah. true, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it, it feels a bit like, um, yeah, you're right, that that in the first book it felt like an oracle. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of had this sort of really quasi-religious, and that was partially like the way that they understood it. But I wonder if the thing itself is learning from them and the way they talk to each other mm. in this third book because it is really, really different that it's much more kind of conversational and funny now. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that, that would make sense. It's spent a lot of time around these gnomes, mm. so yeah, yeah. And sponging up information from computers that it wouldn't previously have had access to as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so maybe it's just like been watching sitcoms and has like <laughs> developed an understanding of humour. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, because once it gets into an airport and on Concord and, and goes to America, like presumably there are a lot more computers around yeah. and they're thinking about different stuff. They've got different information. Whereas in the store, they're all just going to be about sales and serious business business, <laughs> you know, nothing very interesting or fun. Did anyone else get the thing when, when it's like, oh, we're, they're at the airport? I just had a sort of like, ugh, feeling because it sucks going to the airport. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, well, they have to be at the airport and they're really small and they don't know what they're doing. It's like the worst part of the airport even worse mm. yeah. and it's the airport in the is it the late 80s um also yeah. the crap he throw yeah so it's like an even crappier airport than the airports that we imagine oh mm. no yeah and they're they're getting on i mean this it is definitely the late 80s because they're going to get on the concord oh that, i'd forgotten that detail and i was like this is weird and I, I got worried because they you know they crawl into that little weird space to hide and I remember reading a story that one of the things that happened on the Concorde is when it's going at supersonic speeds, it actually the like the fuselage like gets longer, like it sort of stretches out a bit, and there's like because someone and I don't know if this is a true story, but I read it somewhere that someone put something in yep. the gap, like just like a book or something, and then um, when the plane landed, they couldn't find it anymore because the gap had closed up. And I'm like, is that really true? Surely that can't be true. Uh, but. But I was worried that, is that part of the story that I've forgotten? Are they going to have to jump out or get squashed? Well, the thing tells them not to go into a specific spot because, like, t- tells them to have to go, go in, otherwise they're going to, like, not be able to breathe. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's right. Is... Have, you, have any of you ever been on a Concorde? No. no. Have you? I've been, there's not to fly. I've been, because I, I went on them after they've been decommissioned, like when they don't work anymore. Mm. They got one at Brooklyn's in England, the car yard. So, of course, there's a Concorde there sure. um, yeah. that you can go on and it, um, just tells you about the history of the Concorde and it's weird you spend about 15 minutes on there and they show you a video and they do a simulated sound at the end of it you feel like quite sad that Concords are no longer a thing yeah so uh, like it's being nostalgic for a past that's not yours but yeah and they um they play a Queen song which I think is quite fitting to mm. discuss on a Terry Pratchett novel <laughs> yeah. um but yeah it's um they're interesting they're very well engineered I think it was strange how at the end there was just non-stop problems Whereas it had quite a good track record of safety. Yeah, up it feels until like then. like just a really interesting example of like overreach of like that it, it had so many really great things, but we just kind of possibly weren't quite there yet in mm. terms of the technology. And I wonder if I don't know if they'd waited a little bit longer because we haven't tried to do that since. And I wonder mm. if it's because of the failure or whether it's because we're still not there. Because they operated for quite a long time, didn't yeah. they? Because like at least over a decade. Mm. Because it was in the early 2000s when they had those two accidents, I think, in short succession. And then they're like, Concords are done. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, I kind of feel like the other thing that sort of was the death knell of them is that communications technology has improved. Mm. And people don't feel so compelled to fly across the ocean to be in person at a meeting. Because it was mostly business people taking Concord, right? And everybody else is like, I'm going on a holiday. I don't care if it takes 20 hours to get there. I oh, and the, and well, the Lohan being um, in the parent trap. Yes. What? Yeah. That was a big plot point. Yeah, they, it was. They wrote a Concorde in, oh. in that and it was very good. Okay. Yeah. I mean, look, my, my fictional reference for the Concorde is, and this will surprise no one who's a regular listener of the podcast, Doctor Who, mm. uh, there's a terrible story from Peter Davison's, uh, I think his first year, um, called Time Flight, where a um, Concorde gets sucked into a like a time rift uh, and ends up in prehistoric Earth. And it's... Um, it's pretty bad. Um, it's pretty bad. It's, it's got some. It's got some nice stuff in it. There's some really sad stuff. It's one of those stories after one of the main characters dies, and there's some sad things. Now, Lizzie, did you, you were saying um, you know something about how it works. Well, after I went on that very um, specific tour on Concords, 
I'm pretty sure I remember this. This was like from 10 years ago. So correct me if I'm wrong. And I'm not sure if I've talked about it on the podcast before. But I think the way that Concords work is, or part of the way they work, is that they have all the petrol in the sides. Like they're stored in the sides, which affects the balance of it. So they have to have a very careful balance. I think that's why they explode so badly if they crash, because the walls are just full petrol. Wow. That's that's intense. Yeah. I'm kind of glad I never went on one. Yeah, that does kind of seem like a terrible idea. Yeah, but it was very carefully engineered, and they've got like, I think Rolls-Royce did the engines as a whole, and it was a co-production between France and England, I think, mm. as well. So yeah. it was revolutionary in a lot of different ways. But yeah, I think the balance of them was carefully done with petrol in the in the sides, like in the fuselage. So Wow. Okay. That's, yeah. I mean, because balance is important in all commercial aircraft. Like if, That's why the seating plan is quite... Uh, mm. important and they don't just let you sit wherever you want uh, they've got to distribute the weight throughout the aircraft and I, the only time I ever got bumped off a flight and had to wait for another one was when they'd accidentally overfueled the aircraft and they're like well, we can't have all the passengers on because then it would be too heavy uh, can't so, you just take some of the fuel out? Well, they can, but that takes a long time to do safely. Uh. So they instead ask if anybody is happy. Like, we don't need that many people to not get on. Like, maybe like half a dozen. If anyone's volunteer to not go on this flight and we'll put you on the first one tomorrow. Do they give you anything else? Uh, yeah, they like I got a refund and I uh, so I could like I got like a credit for the flight so I could get another flight for free and they put me up in a hotel overnight. So it worked out fine. Um, they accidentally didn't get my bag off the plane, but that's all right. I had a hotel room, so I just had a shower and wore the same clothes. And you mean you wet yourself? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Such a good joke. <laughs> I uh, laughed so many times. I'm like, this joke is for children, but I'm loving it. Yeah. 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 There's just, I, I think, I don't know if we talked enough about how delightful that trope of, you know, the aliens who don't quite understand human ways and they're looking at it from an outside perspective is and how great it is in yeah. these books. It's just, oh, it's awesome. But shall we get back to um, the airport and Grandson Richard 39? And we should. That kind of kicks off where th- their journey path now, do they do they all see him or does just masculine see him just, at this point in i the think airport? it's just masculine because mm. he says to the others you know i've seen him and he's here yeah 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 we should go that way but then but then they lose him in the crowd yeah yeah and they this need is, the things advice to figure out where he's gone do they see him first on the plane or no, no they definitely see him in the, in the airport, airport right and then the thing knows that he's going into the, the lounge, lounge mm. to hang out because of course he is he's like a wealthy in the virgin lounge yeah. yeah yeah clearly the virgin <laughs> lounge because i think we said this last episode but he is clearly richard Branson. yeah absolutely yeah yeah mm. uh, which which is delightful but he's but he seems like quite a jovial lovely fellow yeah sure. uh and he's he got, needs a new pair of socks yeah yeah like for is it because the store has closed yeah maybe but like for a genius billionaire like Get some new socks, buddy. Yeah. He doesn't have time to think about things like socks. I suppose not. Well, the stores still exist. Like it's just that they demolished the original because they want to build a new one. Because they, the, you find out in the second book or the maybe the first one, but they, you know, Arnold Brothers has become this massive like corporation, and they're called Arncorp or, or something. Mm. Which is like communication satellites. So. Well, yeah, Arnsat One. But it just sounds like it's all stuff. It just it's, I, every time I read any of those names, I just think is Arnold Schwarzenegger doing all this stuff? <laughs> that would be this? great. It would be. It would be pretty amazing. Um, but yeah, but they they, uh, they figure out where he's going. They don't find him in the lounge, but they figure out which plane he's getting on and they have to devise a, a plan to get on because they're like, oh, we could just hang on to the wheels like we do. And then and the thing's like, no, no. There's, there's no air up there. You can't breathe. Um, they get offended. Like, I know how to breathe. It's not, it's not about that. Yeah. <laughs> it's not about your skills. <laughs> it's about physics. Uh, and so they, they have to get on the plane some other way, which I, I – and I liked how they, they constantly – 
this it's a very straightforward plot in this one. There's not a lot of twists and turns or or, or big surprises. There's there's I mean there's a couple, but uh, it's just a really great adventure where it's like they're tiny people and here's obstacle after obstacle after obstacle for mm. this crazy thing that they're trying to do. And the first one is just get on a plane. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, for us, the biggest problem for getting on a plane is you drop your boarding pass, which is something that happened to me on my recent holiday. <laughs> or someone um, spends 20 years putting their too large hand luggage in the uh, overhead thing and it's never going to fit, but they keep just jostling it and holding up everyone. Or someone's gotten on the wrong side of the plane and so they're putting their thing up when you're supposed to be walking. Anyway, that I have is a lot annoying. of specific airport complaints. Yeah, yeah. I, I can tell. Uh, how would you go getting onto this this plane, do you think? If I was a gnome? Yeah. Mm. I mean, I think the way that they get off the plane is the easiest way to do it. Yeah. And mm. that's kind of what I was thinking as yeah. they were getting on. I'm like, can't you just like cling on to Richard Branson a little bit and, you know. Oh, Branson even sounds like grandson. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's all there. It's <laughs> really? all there in the page. Oh, my. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Get- so I guess that that would be the easiest way. Or like on the food trolley, but I don't actually know where the food comes from. On a- no, they load it in like a great big, like a giant cube that kind of comes up and gets sort of somehow inserted into mm. the plane. Yeah, there's like a special bit where they all uh, sort of slot in and, mm. and get strapped in so they don't move around when they're not wheeling them up and down the corridors. And they're, they're so narrow so they can go up and down the little aisles of the plane. Yeah. It's um, it's I, I've never seen one being loaded, but I've always I've paid attention a couple of times when the uh, flight attendants are like securing them, and mm. I'm like, this is cool and weird. So I'm always looking for my bag because it's like spotting a celebrity when you see your bag getting yes. loaded onto the plane. It's totally. really exciting. And and then they always throw it around, and you're like, don't throw it around. It's my bag. It's got my things in it. Yeah. 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 But they, they managed to get on the plane, and it, again, you know, I just like that idea where they're like, oh, there'll be wires there. We can climb up the wires, um, which is. <laughs> I just like how they just identified all these things that humans have without ever understanding what they're for. Mm. But they, but they're right. There will always be wires. Uh, they're always plugged into things, and they get on the plane. Uh, and they make make Angelo promise not to steal it. Yeah, <laughs> I love Angelo's. Like he's like, I'm going to drive the plane. I want to drive the plane. The thing that I want more than anything, driving the plane. Yeah. It's not my fault that the truck kept crashing into things. Things shouldn't have been there. <laughs> yeah. The other two are just looking at him, going. Angelo, yeah, please. What is wrong with you? Uh, he's got he's got the need, the need for speed. Liz and I would like to apologise that at this point in the podcast, neither of us thought to make a Top Gun based goose pun. Please make your own at home. <laughs> and he is stuck in that headset. And so yeah, they get on the plane, and they but then they're like, where do we go on the plane? Like, there's nowhere to hide. They're used to being places where humans are having blazes to hide but there's, there's they're right you know there's not it's not like you can get under the carpet on an airplane much harder to hide than in the cab of a truck still i kind of thought there's sort of heaps of places to hide in an airplane because there's under every single one of those seats yeah like where between they keep, the wall and yeah the seat, like there's a, actually like quite a lot of places because yeah. i have lost all sorts of my things in those places <laughs> yeah you know when you're trying to find that extra shoe and all of that stuff so i feel like you know the three of us would probably have a much more comfortable journey on that plane sure yeah. yeah, that's true. They found some places. Would they? Uh, why? Uh, you've been on a Concorde, Liz. Are all the seats a bit more comfortable? Because I assume that because it's mostly for business travel, that it's mostly business class style seating. Or do they really pack people in the way that they do in um, other commercial airliners? I can't remember specifics of it, but I do remember getting on there and being like, "Oh, this is why people pay lots of money to be on these things. Oh, it was They're really nice. nice." Is what 
I can't remember specifics, but it's just the general feeling of nice that it must be in the space, the seats are comfortable. Yeah. Also, the planes were clean. nicer and more comfortable back then. Like they, the seat sizes of planes has decreased, you know, steadily over mm. the years as they yeah. try and pack us all in and charge us less money. If you've watched Mad Men, I almost cried seeing like how nice planes were, like an economy <laughs> class. <laughs> back when everyone, back when it cost a lot more money. And yeah, but yeah, fewer people. Flew. They could smoke the whole time, so yeah. you know, swings and roundabouts. Yeah. You wouldn't want to smoke on a Concorde, though. No, <laughs> no, no. Not anywhere near the wall. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if it was ever allowed, because uh, it would have been before they brought in the bans on all flying. Surely. It would have been around the precipice. Like, Was it like early 90s that they brought in bans? On- I don't know. I think in Australia it was not allowed earlier than the sort of standard international stuff, but maybe I'm misremembering that. I just don't ever remember. And I did go on a plane a few times when I was very young, like we're talking like 30, 35 years ago. Um but I don't remember there being any smoking, but then why would I? I would have been in the non-smoking section. The idea of like a smoking and non-smoking section on a plane is so ridiculous because it's like, you know, this is my smoking section of my living room. Like it's just over there in that corner. Oh, look, it makes no difference whether you're in it or not in it. And the air just goes round and round. Yeah. (laughs) You're in the smoking section of the sealed metal tube. Yeah. Yeah. I do remember planes that I went on as a child having like little places for putting out cigarettes. So it kind of been... Actually, I went on a plane that still had that recently like oh, yeah. you couldn't smoke on it but it was such an old plane that's scary but also comforting I guess. yeah like it's it's made it this far as a good plane it also had more leg room than i have had in, in like two decades and they used to also have the thing where you could pull down like a, a footrest from the seat in front yeah. they don't have that anymore no. yeah oh they do but only in like sort of business class like i i got to fly business class one time in my life uh, when i flew for work uh, but, you know, there weren't any gnomes on that flight. That uh, you know of. That, that you I know, know of. of. Yeah. And you know what? We wouldn't have thought that anyone on this plane, this Concorde, would know of the gnomes. But they do. Like, they get real sloppy at getting at not getting seen in this book. Like, mm. in, in truckers, they only ever get seen by the security guard right at the end because they're like, we have to go now. It's urgent. We don't have to. And, oh, no, Price is Slashed is here. We have to get out of here. <laughs> and they're not even used to thinking of the humans as just humans. Like, they um, the, they think he's a special, like, demon human or something. Um, but in this book, they, you know, they get hungry. And that's why they get seen, which I thought was like, come on, I guys. mean, that is kind of the end of the world for a gnome. Like, mm, I suppose. You know, it's a really important thing. Six hours is a very long time to go without food if you're a gnome. Yeah. Like two and a half days, they were saying. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's like. That's, that is intense. Can I just quickly say, I was waiting for the peanut to come back in a, like a significant way. Cause mm. they're like the peanut, if we haven't eaten the peanut, the peanut's there, I'm like, oh, the peanut's going to be really significant later. Chekhov's peanut. Yeah. Chekhov's peanut. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, we, I mean, it does get mentioned later on, but. I thought it was going to be like used to like but, get a thing onto the rocket or. Oh yeah. But doesn't he just say, oh no, I lost it or something. Yeah. 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 He drops it into the bag. You're right. It's such an anticlimax. It is. Oh, but uh, I, I enjoyed the quest for airline food. That yes. was that was weird. Although again, this is this is one of the times when maybe it's dated a little bit because airline food, you know, obviously thanks to Seinfeld, famously known to be terrible. Um, but these days, at least my experience of it is much is much better than. It oh, really? Been. No, mine is that it's worse. Really? Yeah. I might have a special experience because I'm a vegetarian now. So maybe I the last few times I've been on a plane, it has been totally inedible, and mm. yeah. I like airplane food and I always have. So I, I don't used know to like it when you got all of the little things, the compartments and the things. But nowadays, if you're flying domestically, you just get like 
something that's allegedly a panini but is actually just like two bits of kitchen sponge with some dog food in between. Oh, yeah, so I haven't had that. I, the only ones, the only time I get on planes is like an international flight, which mm. is not that often. And usually it is all the little compartments and you can choose what you get and it's very exciting. Yeah, because yeah. these days most domestic flights, you, you don't get anything for free. You've got to buy something yeah. unless it's a really long flight like Melbourne to Perth or something. Mm. Yeah. Or if it's Qantas and then they, they throw you like a refrigerated bag of chips. Yeah. <laughs> It's always refrigerated. And they're mm. always, the bags of chips, they're always like super inflated because mm. of the like air pressure stuff. I kind of love that. That's kind of cool. I really like the, the description of the, the, the dessert of just like tasting of pink. Yeah. Yeah. And it's wibbly. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I have definitely eaten that on a plane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I have for a while. No. But, but yes, I, I definitely have memories of that. Or, or in a hospital. Yeah. That's the other time you get food like that. Yeah. You put it with your pink. spoon and then you don't eat it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like a blancmange or a, what, is, what do we used to call it? We used to make that at home and it wasn't jelly and it wasn't, it was sort of this milky sort of pink thing and it, I can't even remember what it was called. But gross. It was, Sounds it was, gross. It was Why would you make delicious. that at home? <laughs> it was delicious. I mean, yeah, it was kind of like a mousse, but not really. I don't, I'll, I'll have to look up what it was. Were you training it to win Wimbledon? No. Okay. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> This is, of course, a reference to Monty Python, though I can't say for sure that Ben doesn't train puddings for Wimbledon. But yeah, they, they do get seen. I mean, and Maslin kind of gets away with it for a moment. But then it's not him who blows the raspberry at the No, that's, mm. a, that's kind of the distraction that they make later yeah. on. Um, that's Goethe that does that. Yeah, yeah. Goethe, instead of the... I, I find Goethe really fascinating in yeah. this book and yeah. his, his great, like, crisis of faith, um, I think is amazing. And as someone who's very into cults and neuroligious movements, um, it was very much in my wheelhouse. Um, but I love that moment of him, of him, like, seizing the sword for a moment and, and becoming the brave one after sort of in the midst of this incredible kind of bigger existential fear that he's having. Yeah, and it's it's kind of his element in a way just for that one part of the book where they're on the Concord because he's like, I know how to deal with being inside. Like, I know how to get through places and squeeze through holes and find my way around the bits of stuff that humans build in a way that masculine doesn't. Mm. Uh, and for a book that, unlike the other two, um, takes place mostly outside in the wild, because even though there's some outside bits in, in Diggers, it's still mostly about the quarry where they've made a home. Um, this is that one moment where he gets to shine. Mm. And it is it is really nice to see him have that moment. Yeah. Mm. And then, and then immediately followed by the sort of beautiful, tragic moment of, of when they're like, what's he doing? And he's cutting a hole in his sock mm. oh, so yeah. he can be like um, grandson Richard. And oh. it was like, oh, my God, you're just so broken and brainwashed. And and he, and he, But he's kind of aware of it too. Yeah, he's sort of embarrassed. Which makes it sadder. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, know, he knows he's undoing it to make himself feel better. Yeah. He's doing it in the dark. Sense. He's trying to get away with it, but mm-hmm. they bust him. Like, yeah. 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 And, and that's after they've been seen by the pilots. Because Anglo's like, I'm going to, I'm going to take this plane. Yeah. I want to see, I want to see it. I want to see the controls. And just the way he describes like, there's so many buttons. <laughs> You're like, yep, there really are. I can't imagine. I, did you get to see the cockpit of the Concorde? No, no, I didn't. Cause I, Actually, no, yes, I did. Oh, you did? And I have a photo of it so I can put it up on the Instagram. Oh, after. great. Yeah. yeah, we'll do it that. It has got my dad in the photo. so <laughs> That's okay. Is, yeah. he, is he a gnome? Uh, he's a bit taller. Okay, great. Okay, good. He's from England. I mean, not, not, not all names are from England. but No, yeah. as we find out in yeah. this book. Mm. Uh, I kind of imagine the cockpit is sort of looking like the Millennium Falcon's cockpit of just like <laughs> all buttons like everywhere. Yeah. Mm. But they get seen by the pilots um, and they have to make an escape 
uh, and and they manage to they hide under the seats, and that's when they realise whose seat they're under because Maskin has already seen grandson Richard on the plane and decided not to tell the others because he's like Gerda's going to freak out, Angela's going to be annoyed. Um, let's just keep it to myself. But then he's like, mm, maybe he is supposed to help us. And there's that kind of is this just a coincidence? Is it destiny? Um, or is this just the best plan because we know he's going where we want to go? That's the whole reason that we're trying to get there. Um, yeah, I, I really like for a, a little while, I kind of expected it to not be him and for them just to not be able to tell the difference between men wearing socks that may have come from the mm, store. Oh yeah. uh, and surely there are lots of men with beards wearing socks with labels on. Um, so I kind of hoped that it wasn't him. But obviously the thing had kind of led them there in, in various ways as well. So I, I did kind of like the way that the book played a little bit with that idea of fate and destiny mm. and, and uh, you know, often but not always sort of tried to sit on the fence between, you know, those two opposing sides of Goethe and Angelo of just being, you know, faith and um, aggressive non-faith. And the thing kind of sits in the middle of that as well because it led – them there but also just because they're in the same vicinity doesn't mean they should always come across him because planes are full of like a lot of people so it's just yeah mm. yeah Fences. it's nice it, it's never so unlikely that you think oh come on but it's also never like so obvious that you're not like hmm, maybe hmm. and it's i think he hits that really satisfying spot mm. yeah of is it coincidence is it fate we don't know but it feels good let's mm. do it um, yeah, so they hide in his bag, and I, which is smart. <laughs> this is smart, and um, they uh, they get in. Initially, they get in through the zipper, but then when they're going to get out uh, later on, they do put a hole in it. And yeah, they, they cut through the the stitching, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> like it sounds like a nice bag, and he's already got holes in his socks. I just love the way they kept describing what was in the bag mm-hmm. of like some papers and a hairbrush, and they kept mentioning the hairbrush. <laughs> and I was like. It, it, like it, that more than anything dated the book of like why isn't his laptop in there and his mobile phone and a tablet and a charger and all of those sorts of things that nowadays our bags are full of when we're on planes. Yeah, he's got the the spy with no trousers though. Yes, yeah. what a great name. <laughs> Amazing. Want, was it Gerda who starts reading it? Yes. Yeah, and yeah. It gets really I weird. really really wanted a bit more of that because at one point he's like, I wish I still had it because it was just starting to get good and I really would have enjoyed like a little bit of errata from that. Oh, I feel like I feel like maybe someone needs to write that book. Yeah, like that's got to happen. Mm. That would be fun. Maybe we maybe we should write it. Yeah, this. I don't know. Illustrate uh, it. I'd read it. Yeah, listeners, uh, if you know of anyone who's written it, or if you have any plot suggestions for the spy, why don't we just write it as one of those like tweet threads where like just people add on a sentence and oh. you go like that game we used to play at like parties or at school camp. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, no, I'm into it. Okay, yeah. we're going to do that, listeners. Watch out for All that right. on our Twitter feed. That's going to be fun. Um, but yeah, they uh, they eventually get off the plane without too much more incident. Uh, it takes forever. Um, oh, but then they get on a helicopter, which is my nightmare. Oh, yeah. That is so weird. And why is it in there? But I guess like to get to Cape Canaveral, like he, he seemed like he did some He's a proper... high-flying executive yeah. in the late 80s, early 90s. Like he's flying Concorde and then he gets a helicopter to where he's going. Like he's not driving anywhere. He's like, no, nah, I'm, I'm launching a satellite. I'm getting on as many cool forms of transport as possible, which just makes me think of John Pertwee. Again, this is Doctor Who reference. So sorry, listeners, you've got to take a drink. But... um. But he was so into gadgetry and vehicles that famously in his last story, there's a chase sequence that takes most of an episode where he drives like a motorcycle and a four-wheeled, four-wheeled sort of buggy thing and, uh, and this, this thing and this other thing. And eventually, 
you know, he also get, there's a there's a cartoon parodying it where at one point he's chasing the other guy on a pogo stick uh, <laughs> because it just seems like he uses every form of transport known to humankind, uh, and that's just what he was like. And I, I got that vibe from grandson Richard. He's like, I want to get on as many cool things as possible to celebrate me so launching this satellite. If it was written now, would he be like riding around on a Segway at some point oh as my well? God. Yes, yes. <laughs> or they take him through the helicopter on a Segway tour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess depressingly now he'd probably just get like a fancy Uber. That's that's so that's cool though. Maybe a Tesla. Mm. Oh, a Tesla. Self driving yeah. Tesla. Yeah, self driving Tesla. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. I'm yeah. currently writing a thriller about a self driving bus at the moment. It's super fun. Oh wow. Mm. Is it like is it like like Stephen King's Christine? Like, a little it, bit. Wow. Um, yeah. Can Keanu Reeves be in the movie? Look, it's not out of the question. He should be in every movie. Yeah, yeah. it's true. Yeah, it is. It is somewhat based on. It was somewhat inspired by Speed. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah, it's really funny. If you can think of a title for it, then that would be great. I'm going to need some more plot points, but I'll come back to you later after <laughs> yeah, the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Thank yeah you. we might have to discuss it off air. We don't yeah. want to give away anything. Mm. Uh, Bus with no trousers. <laughs> <laughs> now we're talking. Um, but uh, yeah, they get in the helicopter. There's that great bit where uh, they're like, what's a helicopter? And he's like, oh, it's a plane with no wings. And <laughs> what like, keeps it up? How does that work? Uh, and there's the, re- like, they're just not really aware of it because they're still inside the bag but they're still freaking out about it yeah i kind of wanted then angelo to like do his thing again and like climb out of the bag and want to press all the buttons on the helicopter because i would have thought that he would have been very excited by you know being in yet another new exciting unfamiliar vehicle yeah yeah but i i think they're just also tired and hungry at that point even though they've eaten all the smoked salmon yes and they've lost the peanut now they're they're debating eating the toothpaste Yeah. Mm. yeah good call not to yeah it's not very nutritious. <laughs> I don't know. Do gnomes even brush their teeth? We don't know what the deal is. Surely they should have to. I kind of feel like, again, you know, particularly in this book where their extraterrestrial nature is so much part of the plot, I, I'm always a little bit saddened that we don't find out more about what they look like because we get that one uh, key description in Truckers where it talks about the difference between, like they're basically the same body plan but they're very, very stocky and doesn't really talk about how else they're different. And then all the pictures, all the imagery we have of them from the illustrations and from uh, also from the um, from the animation mm. um, are like basically little pixie people. Like just we said, hey. humans with, <laughs> yeah, we said, hey, with little pointy ears. And I guess that comes from the fact that they recognize that the garden gnomes are supposed to look like them. Yeah. And so they should look a bit like the garden gnomes, which look much more like just tiny people. So, I, yeah, I don't know. I always kind of was curious, like I kind of, but that's just me. Like I always like it when the aliens and things are much more alien. Mm. Whereas- I kind of assume that because like it seems like they've been there for a very long time, like gnomes have been on Earth for. I think they say 15,000 years. Yeah, yeah 15,000 years. Been on the moon. That all of our tropes about little people and elves and pixies come from them, come yeah. from like catching little glimpses of them. And so that's why they look like garden gnomes. So it's not like they look like garden gnomes. It's the garden gnomes look like them. Yeah. And I yeah, love that yeah. line about they'd rather believe in little green men than in leprechauns. Yeah. Yes. I love that line too. I think that, I highlighted it. That was, uh, that was great because it, it's such a – one of the things that gets talked about, and I'm sure you've come across this stuff, uh, Lily, when you've been looking into sects and, uh, and cults and things, but um, the, the idea of when people have sleep paralysis and they have that sort of hallucination of somebody, that – that's where some of those stories came from mm. about being abducted by the little people. Um, but – as 
our fears and our culture changed and we became sort of more in tune with science and science fiction and ideas of stuff that sort of morphed into the idea of, you know, being abducted by grey aliens and stuff. But probably it's the same source. It's just that they interpret those stories differently. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought that's really interesting that it's like that's touched on in this book in that different way. I also find it really funny that they think that mermaids are manatees. Like, yes. Oh, these beautiful women on rocks. It's just like these blubberous creatures like <laughs> oozing their way through the sea. Oh, um, like they're beautiful in their own way, but they don't look like... Sexy women. Yeah. Yeah, fair. Fair. Uh, the quote about leprechauns was, humans find it a lot easier to really believe in little people from the sky than little people from the earth. They would prefer to think of little green men than leprechauns. Hmm? Oh. It's true. It's, well, it's certainly true these days, but I, I, I don't know. And yet I still, I kind of prefer stories about leprechauns. Is oh, yeah, weird? me too. I don't know. Because yeah. you like the idea of something else being here, but I think the reality might be hard to deal with because the idea that they've been here all along, you're ignorant to them, is tougher to track than, oh, well, I'll have to deal with something new rather than getting my head around what I remember being wrong, mm. if that. Mm. And I think these sorts of phases of belief kind of come and go. Like, you know, there's like the the older things of like magic and sprites and fairies and pixies and then we moved on in the 20th century to aliens and then, um, you know, all of my kind of culty research followed that as well, that it comes in these waves of, you know, the this particular era that this book was written was like satanic panic. Yeah. Um, which was a fun time. Uh, and I firmly believe that now it's all of this, like it's the rise of conspiracy, it's anti-vaxxing, it's, you know, it's all of that kind of stuff. And it particularly, I think, linked to like pseudoscientific health stuff and anti-science stuff is, mm. you know, the cult of the, you know, early to middle 21st century. Yeah. Half-baked science drives me insane. Yeah. Everyone's like, oh, no, I've done done the research. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's that feeling that, you know, people want to think, Oh, no, I know something other people don't know. I yes. think that's a huge motivator for it. I think that's, you know, a big part of the whole flat earth movement, for example. It's like, no, we've figured it out. You are all being fooled. We're mm. the smart ones. And that's that's a really seductive thing yeah, to think. Yeah, I'm special. Mm. And it gets in the way of, of introspection like so many things do. Um, like you don't take a step back and look at, you know, what's actually, but what's actually wrong with my like what am i doing wrong what what things have i absorbed that means i'm behaving in a way that is not good for me or the people around me but we don't take that step back instead like we can latch on to other explanations that lets us off the hook from doing that mm. difficult work and i know that you know i've done that at various times in my life i think everybody has and uh yeah it's 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 a it's a seductive thing yeah, there's a moment in that flat earther documentary on netflix where uh one of the women has is being one of the flat earther women is being like slandered online and people are like, you know, saying lots of lies about her. And she's like, you know, if people are saying all of these lies about me and all of these untruths and they really believe those things, it makes me believe that like maybe like makes me think some of the things that I believe might not be true. Like, you know, this Ooh. whole basis for my, you know, whole life might not be true. And she gets right up to the edge of that cliff and then she just backs right off and she's like, but that would be ridiculous. <laughs> oh, no. And what I love about this book is that um, I feel like Gerda goes right up to that cliff and then he jumps off like – yeah. Like mm. I think he really he gets up to that that real challenge of the opening up of his world. Um and in the end he kind of embraces it. Yeah. And it, his journey in this book I think is is for sure my favorite. Mm. And it is you're right because this is not the normal conclusion we get for mm. a character of his no. kind of archetype. And it's it's just wonderful. Yeah, I love it a lot. This feels like a good point to raise the the B plot or the bromeliad plot. Oh, it's been yeah. running through oh, yeah. through all of it with the frogs that have finally just the 
they were mentioned in the previous book about the frogs that live in the flower and they think that's their entire world. And one day one of them gets a glimpse over the edge of the petals and there's a branch leading to what looks like another flower. And so the throughout the book there's that whole thread of the frogs who decide to go on the branch and their journey, which isn't that physically far, but like the things that happen to them. And I found that quite I know. I got really involved in that, even though yeah. there's only little pieces here and there and you know what's gonna happen and but yeah, it's just the one that falls off into the canopy, but like he's probably having the second most exciting time that any of these frogs have ever had. Mm. Yeah, and it was it was interesting because it was also I enjoyed it every time it came up, even though it was basically the same joke over and over again. Yeah. Like they they like trying to say something like to each other that's really you know deep and meaningful, and it's just and you're like what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and their inability to count beyond one. Um. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then and he's, when he gets the big idea, and the frog's like. Mm. One and one. Yeah, but actually, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, and that part of it is really profound. And the bit, and like when Mascon finally realizes what Grimmer was talking about, and 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 sort of says that really very profound thing that I'll have to paraphrase, where he sort of talks about how it there's something sort of very lonely about the idea that once you've seen over the pedals, you can't go back again. That you can't, um, you know, return to the safety of that. And I think that that's really, really scary. Um, that kind, of, and that's kind of why the book feels so existential to me. Of that idea that it, there's no going back. You can't unlearn things once you understand how the world works. Mm. You it's can't like, forget it. It's like Fre- why Frodo can't go back to the Shire. Yes, exactly. Like yeah, he's seen, sad. Seen the wider world. He knows that it's not the safe haven that you know all the other hobbits have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Sam copes, but I think that's he copes by compartmentalizing and denial and just trying to forget. Yeah, but. Yeah, I actually got quite irritated at the end that they um I, I'm still having mixed feel uh, jumping forward to the end of the bromeliad plot of the actual flower. Mm. The frogs make it there, and then these guys swoop in and like we're taking this, and I'm like, they did all this effort to get to this place, but also, am I mad because then they get an even more exciting journey because like they've made it to this new flower, and this new flower is going to even more places. Yeah, and I think I was a bit stressed in the previous one because we saw the flower get dropped off at the quarry or at the edge of the quarry. And I was like, what if the flower dies? But they specifically what if the, put, it tips to the side a little bit and the frogs fall out. Yeah. Yeah. But he specifically put in a line about how like they've got things in the ship to help keep flowers alive. I'm like, okay, good. And it's kind of like that thing that Amy was saying in the first episode about how putting in that line that the security guard got out just because you wonder if things are going to be okay for the frogs. Yeah. And that's something that the kids worry about that adults are like, oh, that character's not important. And also I know they're not real. But with the younger readers, you've got to think about that. We can't leave like some person to like horribly die because mm. if we don't say no, they're okay. Some kids will really worry about that. My my cynical grown up brain thinks like when they take the bromeliad back to you know the planet of Gnome, that it will you know um, it will naturalize and wipe out all of the native species <laughs> and the entire nation or the entire planet will be overrun by like frogs and bromeliads. Like the tree frogs will grow like three times their original size, yeah. which means they're big enough to eat gnomes. And you're like, oh no. Or maybe they'll domesticate them and ride them around like geese. Yeah, that would be cool. But I got so invested in the the mipping frogs. Like, even though they, all they say is MIP, I got a bit sad when some of them got eaten and didn't make it to the mm. to the thing. So, yeah. 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 It's weird how, I mean, this is, you know, that's Pratchett's talent. He can make you care about a frog who can't count past one. Mm. Um, but I guess that's that's quite endearing in its way, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, poor old frogs. I do like um Lily's future hellscape. Yeah. 
Caused all by the bromeliads, frog. all frogs, no gnomes left. It's like that episode of The Simpsons where the, they go to Australia and then when they fly back, there's like a koala, but it's like secretly a drop bear. Like yeah. it's got sharp teeth. And it's like, <laughs> like clinging to the helicopter going back to America. Yeah, yeah. that was hilarious. Um, well, look, this is when they get out, out of the plane uh, and out of the helicopter, they end up in the hotel room. Where Richard keeps wetting himself. Yeah. <laughs> so it's never not funny. Yeah. It's very funny. <laughs> Uh, and, then, and the thing, this is where the thing reveals that it can understand what people say. Although it does that at the airport, doesn't it? Um, when they're, when they're, he's talking to them. Yeah, it's just gnome language slowed down. Yeah. Which- and that fascinatingly, yeah, it's, it's, it's that the gnomes aren't speaking their own language. They're speaking English. Mm. Which I've been wondering about in the earlier books because it, it kind of seemed that way. Like they can read the words mm. and they make kind of sense to them once they figure out what the sounds are. It's not like they're learning another language. They're just learning to read the same language. Uh, and I was like, really? Why would they? And this book answers that. No, they've ended up speaking English because their own language has been corrupted over such a long time. But then you're like, well, if you've learned to speak, hu- how did you learn to speak human without being able to hear the noises properly? Like, it's a bit weird. It's like if you were doing the language learning tape. Tape. Oh, I'm so old. Where uh, was language at 15,000 years ago, though? Well, that's a good point. So they could have like evolved together and then split off at or, some point. And may, maybe, yeah, one of the earlier groups of gnomes many, many generations ago learned to speak English in order to communicate with the humans, but then realized that was a terrible idea. Mm. But after a few generations, they forgot the other language because they were speaking English so much or something. I don't know. There's lots of ways to make it make sense. But, but I it wouldn't think, have been English like 15,000 years ago. Not 15,000, no. But, but it would have been something that then might have evolved or it might have happened more recently. Or mm. I feel like that there would be like French gnomes speaking French and... You know, but yeah. as in if it was like ages ago, they talked to each other and then let it back. You'd be speaking the the English of the period mm. then. Yeah, so but like, so then this maybe only happened a hundred years ago. Yeah, which would have been like thousands of years in gnome terms. So exactly. True. Yeah, so easily long enough for them to have you know lost their own language and, and picked up this other one. Although, like I said, I just feel like learning English if you're a gnome would be like trying to learn English from a, a an English language learning tape, but the tape player you've got is stuck at like playing one tenth speed, so you'd end up like learning words that are like. Maybe they found like a tape deck or a record player and like put it on double speed. Sped it mm. up. <laughs> yeah, look, the gnomes a uh, hundred years ago they would have still had that much. They probably wouldn't have had a cassette player, but. No, but they would have they would have been technologically advanced to understand a human one mm-hmm. uh, or the human equivalent. And maybe they still had more tech. I mean, we only ever know about the thing and it is the only, I mean, it, the way it talks about itself, it is the only um, flight recorder and navigation computer for the ship. So why they, uh, maybe why they, had they took fish. it out of the ship, I don't know. I guess that's its job. Mm. Uh, but did they have other devices? Have they lost them? Is that why gnomes and pixies in stories do magic? Because they used to have advanced technology. I mean, it kind of all makes sense, but it's it's just kind of a, it's almost like, the, I think there'd be some really interesting like short stories in just like little snippets of mm. how the gnomes interacted with humans over the you know, generations. Do we ever find out why they came there in the first place? They're just exploring. Hmm. But that's, that's, well, that's the, Did I don't know. ship that, fail or something? Yeah. So the, the story in, in truckers when the um, thing reveals it is that, yeah, they were explorers. They were space explorers. They came to earth. They realized it was inhabited. They parked a big spaceship on the moon and they took a small spaceship down to the earth, but crashed. And hmm. uh, they never say why they crashed, but um yeah, and then they got stranded there. Oh, and so Anglo's, then they had to, yeah, Anglo's so, ancestors were driving. Yeah. <laughs> oh, harsh, but probably true. And so then they had to wait for human technology to catch up enough Yeah, so that the thing could talk to a thing to get up to the... Yeah, and yeah. it's a big spaceship, but you you know it wouldn't have had to have been that many of them 
because over 15,000 years, that's a lot of gnome generations. So mm. they could have been loads of gnomes. And we know that there was like a thousand gnomes or something that lived in the store. Was it a thousand? It was certainly in the hundreds, high hundreds. Um, so yeah, it's, I, I think, I think that was the deal. Mm-hmm. They're basically like, they're the, they're the Federation of Planets yep, yep. for gnomes, guys, As, which I, look, I would watch that TV show in a heartbeat. That yep. would be great. Totally. Cause then there'd be, cause it, but you'd watch, you know, Maslin and that group of gnomes trying to find a new planet and mm. having crazy adventures. That would be amazing. I would like to see like, like a cut like Masculine and Grimmer and maybe a couple of the other ones join, like go back to, you know, what would now be incredibly even more technology advanced mm. gnome planet and then like Federation of Gnomes from there, of them having to learn all of this new technological stuff. You have to wonder why after 15,000 years more gnomes had never come to find them. Because legends are like, oh, some went there and they never came back, so it was probably bad. Mm. Oh, yeah. I'd sort of be like, oh, yeah, it's just like... Maybe the ancient, you know, it's kind of the story of the ancient. Maybe on their planet there is no technology anymore and they're like, you know, it's like a Stargate situation. Yeah. They're like the ancient ones of their planet and now the modern gnomes have a reasonable level of technology but they don't know anything about them anymore. That'd be sad, wouldn't oh, it? So many options. So oh, many great storytelling opportunities. I know. But, and we don't know if they go home or if they find a new home because they talk about either could be good. Yeah. I'd check out the old home and then find a new home if the old home sucked. Yeah. That's what I would do. Yes. Mm. Yeah, and imagine going back home to that and like telling all the stories of what happened. And mm. That'd be amazing. But like, what would we do as a human race if suddenly like a bunch of like slightly more primitive humans came from another planet and like a spaceship being like, oh, 15,000 years ago, like we we crash landed somewhere else and now we're coming home. Like, what would we do as a society? To I have people? read a book that is really similar to this, but I can't tell you what it is because it's a really massive spoiler that that's what yeah. happens. Oh, wow. <laughs> I feel like people would get really sus. They'd be like, really? Is that really what you're, you're yeah. aliens, aren't you? You've come to eat us all and you're in disguise because that's, I feel like that's the trope. I wouldn't even go that far. I'd just be like, it's a hoax. They get quarantined to heck, though. Like, that's, mm. yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. As they should be, because you don't know what diseases they're bringing back. Yeah. Yeah. I often do a thought experiment where, like, I was thinking if an angel appeared before me, would I, like, what would I think? Like, and I just can't imagine a scenario where I would believe that it's an angel. Like, as, you know, like a hardcore atheist, I'm like, I can't imagine in any way. Like, I'd be like, it's a hoax. I'm being punked. I'm having a stroke. You know, somebody has slipped LSD into my tea. And then talking to Scott Westerfeld, he his first reaction would be, oh, well, it's aliens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I find it really interesting. And then, like, I've talked to religious friends who'd be like, oh, I just believe it was an angel because, you know, it's an angel and I would know. And I find that really interesting, that kind of idea of what would your first brain response be? Because mm. I feel like I'd more believe myself from a parallel universe visiting me or me from a future timeline than mm. an angel because yes. you'd know what to ask the others yeah. in theory. But, like, what do you want to ask? ask an angel to prove that it is one yeah exactly yeah and it's like that's its own kind of crisis of faith in the same way that you know Goethe is presented with this physical evidence of grandson richard it's like this is like the closest i'm gonna get i mean he's basically like jesus to arnold brothers he's so ancient god right yeah and he's very old like he's not as old as the store but he's much older than any of the you know he's like four generations of gnomes old um but except that they know humans exist for real so there's they've got that extra dimension of you know, we're living in their world, which is something that they never really consider in truckers. And the store gnomes are like, no, this is our world. Like the humans just do stuff that means we get stuff for free. But then in the quarry, you know, Grimmer and um, the others are like, no, this is clearly their world and we don't really belong here by it's the end of the book. It's a big theme of this one as well. Yeah. Which is interesting because like they're separate and they're coming to the same conclusions. Mm. 
And I think it's a really necessary conclusion because the answer is often like, well, this journey you're going on is really big and really dangerous, so why are you doing it? And they have to have a reason why they can't just find another store. And that reason is they're never going to have a home anywhere because there's always going to be humans and they always have to hide from them. Yeah. And I think their experience of it is quite different because Grimmer's realisation of that is this is never going to work. Like we've tried so hard to make a new home for ourselves, but the answer is got to be something else. Mm. And she's sort of a bit like, I guess masculine was right, but this sucks, you know, like this is so hard. I've got to try and keep everybody together. And masculine's experience is, I think this is the right thing to do, but I didn't realize how difficult it would be. And I still am not quite sure what the end result is going to be because mm. we're going really into the unknown here. Um, we're going to another place that we just don't understand. And like, and and also the interactions that they have with the humans in this book are frightening for the gnomes. Um, although they're also very funny for us, like when grandson Richard comes out of the shower and sees them trying to steal his sandwich, yeah. <laughs> which is so great. But how would you, I know I keep going, but how would you respond? But how would you, like, if you'd ordered, a, you're in a hotel, you've just had a really long two flights, you've had your shower, you're singing My Way, which I'd like to discuss if that's got any pertinence. Yes. So, yeah. But, yeah. and then all of a sudden your sandwich is here and you're like, great, I get to eat. Where is it going? <laughs> I don't know. Like, where's my sandwich Like, going? surely you just have to put it up to, like, sleep deprivation? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, his reaction later on is not one of, oh, yeah, it's more like, wait, that wasn't a dream? Like, he's 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 surprised still, but now he's, like, reassessing that experience. Um, but there's that great moment where they're kind of just stopping this, staring at each other for a second, and then it just cuts to them being outside. Yeah, <laughs> like oh, no. with the sandwich. <laughs> yeah, and there's like, like, oh, it's just so Warner Brothers cartoon kind of like you can just see their little legs going underneath the sandwich. Ah, oh, it's great. I love that bit. Yeah, so why is he singing my way? Well, it's firstly like because it's very funny. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it's I mean it's a classic song for people who feel like they're high achievers to sing, isn't it? Also, yeah. like, is there enough of it in there that Terry Pratchett would have had to pay rights? No. Okay. No. Because he like paraphrases the lyrics yeah. in, in a clever way. Yeah, yeah. I, I am. I'm an expert at paraphrasing song lyrics because um, <laughs> it's tell. expensive to use. Yeah, it even oh, you like can't a- use the real song lyrics. It's just too much of a pain in the ass. So you've got to be like, you know, oh, that one time in that song that's the song is called My Way because titles are not copyright. Where they talk about like, you know. Climbing all of the things and going to the place. And yeah, I've yeah. definitely done that before. It this is holistical. It's just fantastic. Yeah. I, this is, I, I think, one of the things that's very frustrating about science fiction that's set in the future is that, you know, they're always obsessed with really early 20th century pop culture. Like they're not, they're not listening to the Beastie Boys. <laughs> they're like, list, they're like playing Mozart and like, uh, and like really. And, and well, which is obviously not the 20th century, but you know what I mean? Like they're playing, they're always into classical music mm. because that's royalty free. They don't have to pay for that. They yeah. can use the songs and there's no lyrics anyway. Um, but I'm just like, are you serious? Like, what? And, and if they are into 20th century stuff, it's like from the 40s or the 50s at the latest because that's, you know, out of cop. Well, some of it, depending on what country you're in, is out of copyright. So it's, it's just like, this feels weird. <laughs> so I think the thing to do is to be a very successful pop artist mm. and then write your own songs into your books. Yes. Oh, cunning. Yeah. So is like that's, any any, authors out there, mm. has do that. done that? Anybody done that? No? No. I no. mean, so I should Not copyright here. that. And yeah, you should. They, then they have to pay me when they do it, defeating the whole purpose. <laughs> well, you could just charge them a very small fee. Yeah, it depends. Yeah. No. Um, the, I think that there probably are some 
like I think the lyrics of my way are I mean like I sort of feel like they're kind of generic enough lyrics that they could probably apply to any story but there's definitely a lot of like I've traveled each and every highway kind of content in there that does reflect the themes and the mistakes I've made a few and they're forging their own paths yeah yeah, it, it is It is quite an analogy for, yeah. And they later walk down a highway, through. don't they? Like, yeah, like, they yeah. do. And I think for each of them, like they, like for the three of them, for the three gnomes on this particular part of the journey, they are each doing it their own way and they're all finding their own path uh, and their own lines to walk between what they believe and what they don't believe and what they choose to do. And then I think back at the quarry, like Grimmer is certainly doing it her way um, with civil disobedience and... <laughs> I'm there for that. And I really miss her in this book. Like I, I miss like having any female characters in a book. The only one yeah. we see is the the chief lady from the the Floridian gnomes. Oh, we have the yeah. people who deliver food on the plane. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, yeah. Um, but Shrub is great, but you're right. Like she's really the only one. Yeah, yeah. and I did yeah. feel like there were perhaps some opportunities to have a couple more. Like, you know. She could have had a daughter instead of a son. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, that would be, yeah. And that character doesn't, whose name I have forgotten because they... Pion? Pion, yeah. yeah. Pion could easily have been a girl. Um, and also, I'm not 100% convinced adds anything to the story at all. Um, I yeah. kind of wanted something more from that character. Um, I think I if think, it was a fourth book, it would have been yeah, good. Yeah. But- I think, well, I, I think Pion's really just there so that they have someone who can warn them about what's going on. Like, mm. Pion's the one who knows that they can't stay near the the rocket takeoff because it's going to be too loud mm. and alerts them to that fact. Because if they were just sitting there by themselves, they would have been like, oh. And they would have been like completely deafened and flattened because they wouldn't have tried to get away or face the other direction. Mm. But I feel like a way around that would have been to have the thing tell them that. Like if you didn't want to have this other character, mm. project well, could have made the, the thing intelligent enough to to be able to warn them. Mm. Yeah. And and I, I kind of thought Pion was going to be helpful because after – you know, after the thing has Maskin's run off with the thing, um, that Pine would help them to track him down. But then they they just get on the board of the spaceship, so it doesn't happen. Yeah. But um, but look, we, we're probably we're getting a bit out of order, which yeah. is which yeah. is which is generally fine. But we do want to make sure people can follow this. We do. I don't. I do know that there are a few listeners who don't reread the books or sometimes listen to episodes about books they haven't read yet. So <laughs> we don't want to lose you. Uh, and we were at the point where the gnomes had just run away from grandson Richard with his sandwich. And Into they find the wilds of Floridia. I know. Mm-hmm. And it's so dangerous. There's a, <laughs> and they a, don't realize how dangerous. I know. A, I love the bit where they find, they figure out they're in a nature preserve um, and uh, the thing says, oh yeah, there's manatees, there's like sea cows and crocodiles. And they're like, hmm. and they ask him what a crocodile is. And the thing like tells them and there's that great thing where we don't hear the dialogue but it just says the thing told them what a crocodile was and then and then it's like a pause and they go what oh it's a what are you serious like and they're just freaking out because they're like no we've never seen anything dangerous we grew up in the uk like the worst thing to eat us was a fox and now there's crocodiles what is this nonsense yeah and i actually thought there's a bit where they cross over a, a stream on a log and i was like it's gonna be a crocodile isn't yeah it? And, yeah i feel like that was a little bit of a missed opportunity for a little bit of extra drama yeah. Maybe got edited it out. Maybe. It might have been too much. Yeah. It might have been too frightening. Too scary. Uh, but I thought it was cool. And there's a great clue where they sit down and, and um, Maskin does poke, like they find the remains of a campfire and they make a little fire there. Uh, but none of them go, who made this fire? Mm. And then later on Maskin goes, oh, I should have uh... thought about that. And and I and I I tweaked to it, but I I don't think I would have the first time I was reading it I didn't. necessarily. Yeah. 
Um, this time I did, but I think that's just because I had read it before and I knew what was coming up next. But I, yeah, I, I like those little moments where the authors ahead of you, but the characters are not. Mm. The characters are where you are because you so often see it the other way around, where you're sort of your you're catching up, um, and the the author's like you're ahead of the the characters, but in this case, you know, the author is ahead of you, but you're with the characters behind them. I like that a lot. Yeah, I also like. Um as a side point, but to setting the scene of Floridia is how Greta's like, they've really got the air conditioning worked out here. It'd be really nice to retire here. <laughs> yeah, so they've got yeah. like all the classic Florida tropes. Yeah. Crocodiles yeah, yeah. and retirement and nice weather. <laughs> and also like if you had, if the only thing you'd ever known was, you know, England, man, going to Florida for the first time must be pretty incredible as a gnome yeah, of wow. suddenly being warm all the time. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Masculine's not, I, I like also that masculine's not comfortable there. No. Like, it's the outside, but I just don't know what's going on. Yeah. Uh, I'm used to frost and foxes and rabbits and stuff. What What is this? Yeah, he definitely got baked beans shipped him because he didn't want to eat the local food. Yeah. Mm. So this is something that an Australian cricketer actually once did. His name is Shane Warne, um, though in this scenario it's kind of a shame Warne because India has very good food and you shouldn't have to order beans from Australia when you're having the opportunity to try new things. But I guess he had to do something past the time if he wasn't sending raunchy texts to strangers. Yeah, that's mm. a mean illusion. Oh, but he's nicer than that. Sure. Uh, well, he's the one. He's the only one who eats the the lizard later on mm. and sort of enjoys it. Um, but that's after they meet the Floridian gnomes who suddenly show up with spears, and he's like, "We don't have my spear." Um, and they are quite different to the gnomes we've met before. Mm. Uh, they have a very sort of well, I don't know what the word is. They're kind of very much more in tune with nature, I guess. Mm. And they they have this sort of weird symbiotic relationship with the geese amazing i'd love to know like the back history of that like who was the first gnome to to tame a goose yeah and how do they steer them like because like the leader steers the flock but like Mm. how is that it's like an ikran situation but like the ikran situation is kind of icky in avatar oh yeah Mm. yeah Yeah. um but they i I guess they just sort of like you know have some sort of way of tugging on their feathers to say go this way Mm. or you know, until they're going in the right direction. But it's interesting. I mean, how do the gnomes know which way to go? Yeah, that's what I wondered. They're like, we've got this symbiotic relationship with the geese where we help them migrate. And I was like, I'm pretty sure geese already know how to migrate no, to but Canada. isn't that like the whole thing? Like, we think that geese know how to migrate, but there's this unspoken force of gnomes. Oh, are the that ones that tell that, So that all of the geese have gnomes on them. Yeah, because isn't like we don't quite know how yeah, birds yeah. know where to go. And it's because yeah. the gnomes are telling them and we don't know about the gnomes. <laughs> and there's a lot more gnomes than I thought there were. Because if there's a gnome... I guess you only need one gnome per flock, don't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, these are kind of the geese that, now, you know, they migrate between Canada and Florida, which is a long way, but it's not like the longest migration no. ever. And I guess it, it doesn't necessarily follow that all other species of, of bird or even all other kinds of geese have gnomes. Yeah. But I loved that like comment of like, we think we know how the world works and we're like, oh, well, we know that geese do this. And actually it's done by these, it's not necessarily gnomes, like you said, but there's yeah. unspoken forces that we as humans don't know about and mm. i thought that was a yeah. really neat touch that underscored the themes of the book mm. that was great and look the, and these gnomes have obviously been doing that for a very very long time because they still speak a language that's very close to original gnomish and so who knows maybe they've been doing it for ten thousand years and mm. so nobody else really realizes that that's just been going on all that time also they are super brave because geese are terrifying yeah yeah like they talk about them like they're no big deal but like they'll break your leg yeah you know they're, they're, they're terrifying they're, they honk real loud yeah and they just come right for you yeah and i i you know i misremembered this too because i remembered them flying on swans because uh, they don't mention it in this book but in the first book 
they reveal that the name of the starship is the starship Swan. And mm. I think I think maybe he just left that out of these books because it doesn't really make sense for the gnomes to have a starship named Swan. Although maybe, you know, they have some sort of swan-like animal on their home planet and that's the English equivalent word. But still, it didn't make a lot of sense. Mm. Uh, so I think maybe he's just forgotten about that. But I, but yeah, when looking at the cover, I'm like, is that a, it could be a swan. It's not really a swan, but it's yeah. I, I wasn't I wasn't sure about that. Just the instruction to you know snuggle into its feathers. I'm like, what? <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, gnomes are small, but they're not that small. <laughs> like, so I hope none of them have allergies. Oh yeah. Oh, that'd be awful. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's like a, the fear of like you're falling down because that's what their feathers are. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah no um the the meeting of the other gnomes is is quite interesting as well like they they sort of defy a lot of the expectations that the store gnomes have but they are very much a sort of archetypal in touch with nature kind of society Mm. like they they, i mean we talked we mentioned the navi just recently uh that they're kind of like that like they're the they're the equivalent for gnomes really i would just like to put forward a theory about how they know how to direct the geese for a migration, which is that they are very into the sky, like because their religion is based around cloud watching and mm. NASA, as it's revealed. So maybe they know constellation patterns as navigation as well, perhaps, mm. or they use yeah. the sky and, and the could, sun and as as that. That could be ancestral knowledge because, you know, the starfaring gnomes would have had to have star charts and knowledge of stuff like that. I mean, that doesn't necessarily help you when you're navigating on the planet Earth, but they would be familiar with that kind of stuff. Mm, so, with the concept of it. Yeah, so that's, like, that's a cool idea. Let's talk so, about shrubs. Oh. Well, we do need to talk about shrub because this is also where we meet her. and We don't just meet her. We meet the other guy uh, who they just refer to as Top, Top Knot, <laughs> um, who is kind of like Gerda, like has some very firm beliefs and they can't even understand each other. They just keep arguing. Yeah. I kind of love that, but I was sad I also about it felt like time. the fact that he had a Top Knot and like, now that comes with quite a different imagery. Like, mm. so now I imagine like Top Knot as being an insufferable hipster. <laughs> yeah. Being like, well, actually. And having a massive beard. Yeah. But very well manicured. Yeah. And yeah. he'll stop his argument partway to order a really complex coffee. Yeah. Or like a kombucha smoothie or something. Yep. Oh. And then just like, sorry, um, like <laughs> mansplaining everything to everyone constantly. Mm. mm. Well, I mean, that's, that's what he's trying to do mm. to Gerda, but not they're not getting through to each other. Yeah. And it's interesting that Gerda still has that feeling, even though he's already going through his crisis of faith by this stage. But if someone was like like that to me, I'd double down even if I didn't really believe my thing because yes. of pride. So it's like, well, well I'm not going to let you explain this thing to me. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Which is probably not like the best way to go through life. But- yeah. Uh, but this is, you know, it's a big moment because this is like, no, there's way more gnomes. Like the, the ones in the store and Masculine's little group are not the only gnomes. And it's sort of been that, you know, in, in truckers, they realize, oh, we're not the only gnomes. There's hundreds of gnomes living in this store. But now they realize, oh, and there's gnomes all over the place maybe because if they're not just in the UK, but they're also in Florida, where else could they be? And the answer is just about anywhere. And w- when there's 15,000 years of time in gnome scale time, uh, that's like 150,000 years. That's a lot of generations. That's a lot of spreading out. But yeah, look, they, it, it's it's weird. And the thing talking to them is really interesting. Mm, that the thing can communicate with them and, and sort of acts as a translator. And is drawing things in the dirt with its little probes. Yes. I thought that was so cute. 
Mm. It just reminds me of any of those, you know, movies where somebody's trying to communicate with some people that they've just met and they don't speak the language and they're drawing little diagrams and speaking a little bit. It's like a bit like Stargate in most episodes Stargate of Stargate. Too. Mm. That was yeah. on TV last night. Really? The movie. The film. Yeah. Oh, it's a good film. Mm. And the TV show is pretty good. It uh, is pretty good except for that one episode that I have complained about repeatedly. About. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. I got past that episode. I, I'm still going. Uh, although I haven't watched a anything for a while. I might do that. Why am I talking about that on a Terry Pratchett podcast? It's not a Stargate podcast. Maybe we should do a Stargate yeah, podcast, would, Liz. I'd rewatch it, even that episode. <laughs> but mostly so then you could yell about it for an hour. Yeah. yeah. You did absolutely. not see the hatred in Liz's eyes. <laughs> we should do a podcast just about that episode. We'll do uh, one of those ones where we do an episode about every dive. minute of the episode. We can call it Hate for Watergate. Uh, what, cool. Water what, hate. Yeah. No, I think yours is better. What, order hate? <laughs> <laughs> Let's get off that topic. Um, yeah, before I like, flip some tables. Yeah. Shrub. 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 Yeah. I shrub. love Shrub. I love how like incredibly like she's like the absolute opposite of um, of Gerda mm. in so many ways. She's just like, nope, this is, this is what I can see. This is what I know. I know that the sky is not, uh, you know, was not constructed by the thing. I know it belongs to NASA. It says so on the fence. Yeah. Yeah, and that's very reasonable. And also, I just like the way that the thing works out exactly what they think without even having to ask too many questions because mm. it's just like, I understand how gnomes think. You're yeah. all very literal. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay, fair enough. Uh, but, yeah, that moment where the thing's going to write the name, the gnomant, yeah. <laughs> where, uh, yeah, the thing's going to write in the sand the name of the, um, what do they refer to it as? The Is it the god? They don't call it a god in the sky, do they? The cloud something. Cloud makers or yeah. something. Yeah. that and, and it writes NASA in the sand, but they can't read it. They think it says N-A-S-A. And the thing's kind of put off. It's like, that is an S. How dare you? I don't have very good. I don't have proper fingers. You just feel it's a bit miffed at this critique of its handwriting. He's like, I'm a flight a flight control and navigation computer. I'm not, I'm not an artist. I'm not a calligrapher. I really like the bit where he's talking about their ideas of reincarnation and souls though so they come back there's a bit later but he goes they believe the operating system of a gnome starts off as a goose if it is a good goose it becomes a gnome when a good gnome dies nasa takes it up to the sky and it becomes a star and what i really love about that is the sentiment alone but the thing is translating from one gnome language to another through itself so the it it has introduced the operating system thing as well so it's been filtered through two different understandings to come to this and it still makes sense. Yeah, and it comes back to that definition from the first book about what a soul is where they say it's that bit inside you that makes you who you are and you're like, that's kind of a beautiful way to think about it. And Um, the thing itself has to upload its consciousness into other things but it's still, unlike other things, it can have its soul elsewhere while also still having it itself and I find that also very interesting Yeah, as a concept. Yeah, that was cool. Uh, but then, yeah, they, they write the name and that not everyone, like, he's like, you get ready to run because they might not like this. But she's kind of cool with it. Shrub's like, okay. You yeah. And she's like, here, take my kid or my grandkid. Yeah. And Mask is like, no, it's, it could be dangerous. And she's like, no, cool. that's okay. That's what it's supposed to be dangerous. That's yeah. the whole point of going off on your own on adventures. And uh, our kids take gap years here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of what it is, isn't it? A very dangerous gap year. Yeah, uh, and it's and, like, oh, we'll don't take too long a farewell. And they're like, yep, cool, bye, see ya. And they fly to what is, you know, presumably Cape Canaveral, where the rockets take off. And it's also because they ride geese there. Like that, they have that scary goose riding journey for an hour to Cape Canaveral. 
And um, why it's not sad when she says goodbye to her son, I think, is because they're quite confident they'll see each other again. Mm. Whereas with the other gnomes, it was if you say goodbye, it's probably forever because they're so used to death and also they're not used to navigation or separation. Mm. So I thought that was quite interesting how certainty can play a role in how you interact with other people. It's Mm. a sharp contrast to the way Grimmer thinks about masculine when he's not there. And how she has that sort of breakdown where she realizes he might never be coming back. It's been so long since they've been gone, which is actually something I want to come back to in a bit. But because they used to have that really bleak existence where they like huddled as a small group and they just were dying one by one. So like, if someone went off, you did never see them again, and that's in their living memory. Like that's in their lives. Mm. I just find that really and a real sense of uncertainty about like where they are physically in the world. Whereas these like you know. Uh, continentally shifting, goose-flying, amazing star-navigating gnomes clearly have a much kind of a better idea of of where they are in space. Mm. And so the idea of them being able to find each other again doesn't seem so impossible as these gnomes who have only ever known like a ditch or a store suddenly being faced with the entirety of the world. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So scalability, like how big does the world seem to you rather than how Mm. big it is? It's like the Floridian gnomes – have sort of already they they know that they're just living in one f- bromeliad flower of many bromeliad flowers um, because they've flown over the whole forest. Yeah, on a goose. Yeah, <laughs> which is the only way to travel. Yeah. Apparently, do they honk while they're flying? Like I, I want them to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah sometimes they do. I, I mean, I've heard them. Um, sometimes. Well, I mean, you know, I did a gig recently at a Werribee Open Range Zoo in Melbourne, and uh, it was in the evening. And we were performing on a stage outside and there's these grey geese that live there. And they also live on Phillip Island, but they were just flying overhead every now and then. They just make this massive honking noise as they went past. (laughs) And I was thinking, oh, that's quite an intimidating thing. Like you probably would feel safe on that if you were a gnome and it felt friendly. The noise is so incongruous. It's like this beautiful, graceful thing and just like this disgusting honking noise coming from it. Although they're not described as being very graceful in this book. The way they're described as taking off. Yeah. Well, they're, they're only graceful when they're up. They're not graceful. You know, the transition is not graceful. That's true. Yeah. yeah. It's like penguins. Like they're nice under the sea, but when they're like. Mm. <laughs> Waddling around. Yeah. It's like, can you do anything? No. Oh, oh, but then see you underwater. Yeah. And I can also see like he says, says that thing, like he's more comfortable in a plane because he doesn't quite understand how it works, but he does understand how muscles work. And so he's not confident that two of them <laughs> yeah, are going to keep him up Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. Like I would not fly on a goose. Yeah. Yeah, that's creepy because you're like, I couldn't fly. I couldn't keep somebody up here. Mm. Yeah. I would, if there was like a proportionate goose, I would fly on one if it was at a distance low enough on the ground that if I fell, I'd still survive. Or you could wear a harness maybe. But then you'd be stuck to it. Uh, yeah. No, yeah. You want to have a go, as we're saying. Like, but what if it flies you off to a giant nest and eats you? We'd basically be like flying on a dragon, you know, wouldn't it? I'd rather fly a giant goose than a dragon. A little softer. Yeah. Less that's fair. fire. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it depends on context. Like, if you're riding into war, then you want a dragon. And depends on which dragon. Like, you know, if we're talking like Pete's dragon, then I'm sure that would be very pleasant to fly on. But mm. truthless. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or like a like a Daenerys dragon, maybe a little bit scarier. Or spiky and scaly yeah. and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That looks uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah. I don't want to get on that. Uh, but look, they they get on the geese. They fly to Cape Canaveral. They stop at the edge, like where there's a, a fence that says "Don't come in" and have a nap. And I, I got so mad when they had a nap. I'm like, just wait forty minutes and then have a nap. Yeah. But I love like this the scene where um where masculine pretend, pretends he's sleeping and listens to Gerda talking to the thing. Oh, yeah. And Gerda like this is the real climax of Gerda's crisis of faith is so beautiful. And that conversation where he's realized and he says. Um, 
when he was talking to Top Knot, he thought if he'd been the one arriving in my world instead of the other way around, he thought would have thought I was just as stupid. I am just as stupid. Thing and things like I was maintaining a tactful silence. Yeah. Mm. And oh. and just that realization that that there is another frog in another flower who believes a totally different thing, but believes it just as strongly as I believe my thing, and we can't both be right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that was beautiful. I really enjoyed that. And, it, and it, the fact that Gerda is talking to the thing when he, I don't think he ever, he's almost never talked to it directly before. No, he does. He, yeah, he doesn't. He always tells Masculine. He's like, you talk to it. Ask yeah. the thing. Yeah, yeah. Was it because he knows that the thing has answers and he wasn't ready to hear the answers? Yeah, I suspect so. But like, Well, it's like the old Abbot who had that whole secret audience with the thing. And clearly it told him everything that these guys are just learning now. And he's like, it's told me a lot of things. It's very weird. You must go and get us out of the store. And uh, and then he dies. And you're like, wow, imagine imagine that. Like, I, that that's weird. Like, that's like what uh, Gerda's going through now, but like even more because it's like, oh, I've been doing this job for ages. I understand that, you know, not everything I believe is necessarily true, but it's useful for keeping the peace. And now I've learned this massive truth just as I'm about to die of extreme old age for a gnome. That's just, what a weird experience he would have had. It they kind of puts sh- it into a bit of context. Mm. They sure do choose their abbots well, though, don't they? Like they choose open-minded to a de- like people who are willing to have their mind open. Yeah, mm. at a certain level, and I think that's that'd be unusual. Yeah, it's like it's like what Vatican II was supposed to be. Yeah, <laughs> what is Vatican II? Because that sounds like a sequel movie. Uh no, it was it was a kind of a jokey name. I don't know if it was an official name. But uh, in the mid mid late eighties, mm. they decided that the Catholic Church needed a bit of a uh, a do over, um, and they decided they would reform the Vatican. And I'm probably getting a lot of the details wrong, but basically, they decided to reform the Vatican Council. They chose a new pope, and they tried to be a bit more progressive. And that's so they just they... rewrote the rules and stopped doing all their masses in Latin, and like yeah. just tried to be just slightly more progressive. Yeah, right. there's a lot of stuff they did not change, but they made a big deal about the stuff that they did. Yeah. I will read up on that because I had not heard about it. But yeah, it's it's kind of like that. So, yeah, I think you're right. They they've chosen some great habits. Uh, but they uh, they have the nap, yeah, and then they they're like, we haven't got much time, and they're running towards the satellite uh, launch pad to try and get the thing close enough. And they think that they've got to stick the thing on it or stick it onto it uh, on the outside, just but, as we the audience thought. Yeah, but mm. I, I the audience thought. Yeah, no, I I couldn't remember exactly how it worked either. But then it's like, no, just get me close enough. And close enough turned out to be not that close, uh, just close enough for it to communicate and send instructions to the um, the satellite inside the space shuttle, which it does. Uh, but there's so little time left that it exhausts all its power, sending a really high burst all signal. Or its power. Or its power, yeah. <laughs> but like, which just reminds me of those blocks you get in like uh, Mario Brothers, like the old school Mario Brothers where it's just you running around a set of levels, like jumping over the Coopers and stuff. It's not like, you know, saving a princess in a castle um, and you'd get like a little block with power written on mm. it. And if you jumped on it, it's like you jumped on everything that was on the screen at once. I just, it just kept making me think of that every time they said it. It was <laughs> great it. though. It was cute. Um, yeah. And then they realized, wait, this is, this, this could be bad news because Pion's not happy about this. And they, they run away just as the rocket takes off and the massive noise flattens them and makes them all temporarily deaf. And they had yeah. that great dialogue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The the description of the rocket taking off was one of like it's just like Pratchett is so good at describing things that you know 
how they are in that kind of really beautiful, unique way that he does, where you're like, yes, I know that exact thing. And when he describes the um, the rocket taking off, he says, the sound behind them started like a hiss, like the whole world taking a deep breath. Then it turned into not noise, but something more like an invisible hammer, which smacked into both ears at once. And it's like, yeah, that's the perfect way of describing something that I otherwise would have had no idea how to describe. Yeah, yeah. And I, because I've never really heard it, well, I've certainly never heard it up close, but I have watched videos of the mm. shuttle launches and stuff. I'm just, I was just like, yeah, wow. And imagine being like, you know, gnome sized yeah. while that was happening. Incredible. It's amazing, mm. it's amazing they survived. But I guess you're not entirely clear how close they got, but way too close is basically the answer. <laughs> uh, and after they recover, Maskin's like, oh, we've got to get the thing. Because it sent the message, but we don't know if it sent the whole message. We don't know what the ship is doing. Is it going to come here? Does the thing need to be awake to... And they're trying to figure out what to do with it. And before they can really talk about it too much, Masculine just runs off with it towards the buildings that they can see in the distance. Um, and when he gets there, he's got quite a bold plan. He just sort of finds himself out in the middle of somewhere and shouts. Yeah, like, it's waves. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and the humans notice him and they come and do what you would expect them to do as scientists. Like they Freak like, out. What? And then they put him. They they put down. I like I like the way that they put down a little box, and they don't, they don't try and trap him in the box. They yeah. just put down the box, mm. and he gets into the box. And they're like, "Okay, now yeah. we're gonna take you away." It's just it was a nice moment where they didn't quite react as awfully as mm. they might have. Mm. Um, so they're quite respectful of this like weird little creature. And they're like, "Who is this? What is it? An alien? It must be an alien. Like, why else would it be at like a shuttle launch site?" Yeah, I like to think that it's because it's there, and that most of the people there would be scientists, mm. and so and mm. they and they are spacey scientists. So their initial thought is always going to be, "Oh, it's an alien, and it's come here because it knows that this is where we do space stuff." Yeah, and so they are, I think, much more likely to not freak out, try and kill it, try and dissect it. You know, they also ET. They yeah. know what happens. So like. I think that they are kind of kind and interested and that's why, like, I think that they are, like, in my headcanon of what the humans are talking about, they're like, well, let's not tell these people yet. We won't alert the military. Let's just keep it among ourselves until we figure out what to do. Mm. And this is amazing. This is what I've always dreamt of and, yeah. Yeah, and they put in a little glass box and they're like, oh, yeah, and they give them, like, a little a little bed. bed. But yeah. they're con- too soft. The confirmation bias they would get, though, because they're like, oh, this little alien thing is here and then a spaceship shows up. They're like, yep, that, that's what that was. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. You would never assume the other way around. You would be like, oh, this thing's been living here for a long time and it summoned that. Yeah. Like, oh, no, no, that's the thing it came on. Yeah. Yeah. Although that's kind of what Masculine says to um, grandson Richard when he eventually escapes. Um, and I like, like how that when the thing wakes up, it's like just no nonsense. It's like, okay, cover your ears. We're getting out of here. And it just shatters the glass with mm. like the right frequency sound. And then they run away. And it also like, so it's like, have they seen how fast you can run? He's like, I don't, I don't think so. I didn't really run in front of them. And they're like, great, let's go. And yeah, it was just, I just really loved that whole sequence. It just had, it had that, yeah, kind of Steven Spielberg-y film. Yeah, it really does. And like it really ramps up the energy um, mm. for that last part of the book and you just really fly through that last part and it's just constant like obstacle after obstacle after obstacle um, and lots of action. I think a lot more than we've previously seen in this series. Mm. Yeah. And uh, the other thing I really like about this whole sequence is that it, Pratchett doesn't often go to America. I mean, he doesn't often set his books in the real world in the first place, but usually they're set in the UK. And this is one of the few times we go to America and there's not really a scathing critique of American culture. Like everybody there's quite nice. Yeah. But then like, I guess the main character that we meet there is from the UK as well. And the other ones are all sort of faceless, nameless scientists. Who treat science well. Yeah. 
So I, I don't know. I, I kind of was tickled by that. It's like from the gnomes' perspective, we're all the same, and I mm. think that was kind of a nice like feeling that it's like yeah, we don't see any difference between the Floridian humans and the store humans. They're they're different. I did like in the acknowledgement at the beginning. He's like, it will technically Concords don't go directly. They're just up in Washington, but why would we want to go to Washington? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was great. <laughs> But yeah, look, this is this is where it's business time because by the time Masculine is escaping, everybody's not really paying too much attention to a tiny gnome because there's a giant spaceship that has arrived and it is described as a classic flying saucer, mm. which I kind of love whenever that happens. Yeah, me too. Uh, but it makes sense when you know it's a ship that's like 15,000 years old. But And it does make you wonder though, all these sightings of flying saucers were those like lost gnome scout ships trying to find the other gnomes and failing. Yeah, were, who knows what it was? Um, or maybe they're just, it's just a coincidence, but it, it's always nice to see a classic flying saucer. Mm. Yeah. So that was, that's cool. Uh, but, uh, the thing like does take control of it and manages to land it away from the, uh, the control center. We forget something vital. Yeah. That the other gnomes are still out there mm, yeah. and there's that great bit where it stops like just above the ground and four inches above the ground and they've all like thrown themselves to the ground and then Angelo stands up and bangs his head mm. on it. Just, just, I just, I was just imagining that in my head. Like so many things that he writes are so cinematic, and mm. I'm just like, this is brilliant. Yes, uh, and the rim of light, like around the edge, because I don't oh, yeah. haven't figured out what's going on. You yeah. wouldn't be like, because I wouldn't really know what a ship yeah. was. No, and uh, yeah, that was just brilliant. I love that whole bit, um, and the indignation when the ship starts flying around, and and Maskin can hear Angelo's voice coming out of it. Uh, and he's like, thing, take control of the ship, stop it. And he's and the thing's like really offended. He's like, I can't do that. I can't mm. can't override a gnome's controls. That's not okay. Uh, and you're like, oh, wow. Like the thing has had this very superior attitude this whole time. But once the gnomes are in their proper place doing the thing that the thing is built to help them do, it's like, no, you're in charge. Like I thought he literally couldn't. Like there was like a override. Like if there's a gnome on the ship, you physically can't. Mm. Yeah, sort of like Asimov's laws of robotics kind yeah. of deal. Yeah, I thought that too. Yeah, that makes sense. Not yeah. not even polite. He's he's perturbed because he's like, oh, yeah, I can do a better job. And Angela's literally pressing random buttons, which is so stressful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How does he not like? I mean, thank goodness the gnomes don't come with like laser cannons or something. Yeah. He might have been blowing people up. Well, maybe they do, and he just very narrowly avoided. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can imagine that. Like, if you were making a video of this, like a film sequence, he's like pressing a button, and you just see like a, a red alarm button going with like a clearly like a nuclear symbol or lasers yeah. or something on it and his finger comes down and stabs the button next to it which turns on the windscreen yeah. wipers or something or cake know. appears <laughs> yeah yeah uh just just genius i really wanted to to see a bit more on the ship like i was really really fascinated by the idea that like for the first time ever in their lives they have like gnome sized furniture and so i wanted to see a bit more of that of what it looks like how that feels and i wanted to see some like artifacts from the gnomes that were on there before. Like, are there pictures of them? Do they have personal effects that they left on there because they were expecting to come back again? Art. Yeah. Like yeah. just stuff from gnome culture that, and how, like I love a fish out of water trope so much. And this is kind of like a fish in water for the first time trope uh, in some kind of way. And I like, that's just very, very sparkly to me. And I really, really wanted more of them getting to know their world and their culture. I wanted to know if their beds were hard or soft because... Oh, no, this, isn't that isn't there a bit where Masklin says that it's too soft? Oh, he yeah. wakes up because 
I got that confused with the shoebox. So, mm. yeah. I think it's, so that's nature versus I think it's nurture. on the ship. Mm. I think it's on the ship that, um, yeah, because he talks about how in the store, the, the store gnomes that were well off, like, slept on fancy soft bits of carpet, carpet but yeah. he just slept on a bit of cardboard. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, here he's got, like, a proper, like, human-style bed. And, it, and I, yeah, I agree with you. Like, it would have nice to see some idea of what gnome culture was like, but mm. it's a very, like, just sterile environment. Yeah. I guess it's been cleaned by robots regularly over 15,000 years. Um, but it's, yeah, it was, I, I would have liked to have seen some more of that. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and, and all we know is the only hints we get are they, they have the food machine and they press different buttons and different food comes out and it's food that they're not familiar with because mm. it's like, oh, it's a bit like a blueberry or whatever, but it's not. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I thought that was, that was something a bit missing there. I just imagined it as Red Dwarf. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, me too. Uh, particularly familiar. after the little cleaning robots, I'm yeah. like, well, it's a scutter and I'm a little good. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That makes sense. Uh, but this is this is pretty nearly the end of the book now. Like yeah. there's a there's a couple more important things that happen. They they fly the spaceship off. Um, Masculine gets grandson Richard before they leave to help him get onto the spaceship because the humans are trying to communicate with the spaceship. They're doing all of the classic like close encounters of the third kind things. They're playing music at it. They're trying different languages. They're trying symbols. Um, and then grandson Richard's there and walking through to see what's going on. Masculine climbs up onto his clothes climbs up onto his shoulder and gets the thing to slow down his voice so that grandson Richard will understand what he's saying um, or rather to repeat in a slower voice um, and tells him I'm from, you know, basically says I'm from your store. Mm. And he's like, my grandparents always said there were little people in the store, but they were just joking. But I kind of believed it anyway. And you're like, well, they probably said it because, they heard the little noises and it turned out for them it was real. It was mm. the little people in the store. And I just thought that was a really nice moment that it wasn't they said they saw them but we all thought they were crazy. It was like, no, they just told these stories. Yeah. Mm. And now it turns out they're true and they didn't even know that they were true. So that was really beautiful. It was really yeah. nice. It is really nice. And then the thing just totally ruins it by telling Grandson Richard that it's going to blow his head off yeah. if he doesn't do what he says. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was harsh, but it does it has the desired results. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then there's the nice moment where he takes Masculine to the ship, and just before they leave, he he asks the thing to tell him, "I wish we had more time to talk." Mm. Mm. And uh, Grandson Richard picks him up, and it's like the the way that that sequence is written, and Masculine is so horrified, like he's never been picked up by a human before, mm. and it's so scary, and and yet so gentle, mm-hmm. and you just it, it's really nice because Grandson Richard really is like yeah, I'm just going to help you. Of course I am. Like, hmm. I mean, yeah, I'm afraid my head's going to get blown off, but also, um, yeah, it just was, I don't know, I really enjoyed that sequence. It was really sweet. It was nice, yeah. yeah. The the bit where there's all of the humans around the spaceship and masculine's like, what are they all just doing standing around? And the, the, the grandson Richard is like, you know, they think that aliens are going to come out. Yeah. And masculine's like why and grandson richard said well the thing says i don't know perhaps they don't want to be alone was just like such a profound like human moment of loneliness and again that existentialism that just really comes through in this book and the way masculine gloms onto that and immediately goes that's a big difference between them and us like Mm. we know there's other people because we've been around humans for fifteen thousand years you don't know that we're there so you think you're the only ones and yeah that was it was kind of yeah that was nice too and then um, the kind of profundity of that moment, so she just hangs there for a minute and then is totally shattered by Anglo using the like mm. this the comms system and being like, sorry, sorry, is this a microphone? Is this thing on? Yeah. And yeah, it sound just, like squeaking. Too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so good. Um, oh, but like the 
the academic things will be written about that moment for years to come. Well, because also they're going to record it. And at some point, someone's going to try slowing it down or speeding it up. Yeah. And they're going to realize, oh, we're speaking, speaking English. English. And they be like, that's a conspiracy and it's a fake. Like, yeah. I wonder not- if grandson Richard will ever tell anyone. I reckon he'll only tell his own family. Yeah, I don't. I think that he would assume that no one would believe him. Yeah, and, yeah. Or maybe he will pump some of his billions of dollars into space exploration now. Depends on how eccentric he is. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if Ansat ever goes back to working. Like that, they'd be sort of out of. That, yeah. that would be an expensive failure uh, if it didn't. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but then they're back on the ship. Uh, they explore it for a bit. They have a bit of a nap in a bed that's too soft. They explore it for a bit without telling us what they see. Mm. So, yeah. Ugh, um, except for the food machine, which, yeah. again, uh, another possibly Doctor Who reference that really early Doctor Who stories, they have a food machine on the TARDIS. And that's what they eat. They got on a red dwarf as well. Yeah, it just made me think of the cat on red dwarf being like, fish. fish. Yeah, yeah. Fish. Today's fish is trout a la creme. Enjoy your meal. <laughs> It's that, but in the Doctor Who one, it dispenses these weird things that look kind of like a Mars bar, but they taste like different things. And mm. I think it's only mentioned once or twice in the TV show, but there's an extended description of it in one of the novelizations. And it's just like they describe it's a bit like a Willy Wonka. Yeah, they I was about to say, it's, there's, there's that, it's the chewing gum in, um, in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. That, yes. that it, it's a full three-course meal that changes as you chew. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Was the Doctor Who episode in the eighties? No, that was like that's like really early. That's like in the sixties, right? Yeah, because they because they wanted to the the spaceship stuff like on the TARDIS. They wanted it to feel like real sci fi spaceshipy stuff and have advanced technology. And in the sixties, like having a weird food machine that produced and you know if you're an astronaut, you didn't eat normal food. So yeah, they had a weird space food machine. And and the gnomes one seems quite similar because I, I can't remember how they describe the food that they get out of it, but I don't think it actually is a berry. I think it just sort of tastes like mm. some sort of weird berry and they're not quite sure what it is. Yeah, and there's like a menu with all the pictures of the things and it will. we can only assume synthesize that thing because I'm sure they don't have like deep-stored actual food. Yeah, it's like, um, uh, well, you know, this is interesting because watching the early Star Trek shows and, and also Discovery, Star Trek Discovery, um, they don't have food replicators at that point in the Star Trek timeline. So unlike in Next Gen where, you know, if you ask for a cup of tea or grey hot, like it actually literally creates the cup mm. and the tea out of atoms. Um, in the earlier ones, like they have food machines that kind of synthesize proteins uh, and sort of put them into a shape that looks like the food and then um, – but but they're kind of made out of other stuff. They're, mm. not, they're not literally recreating the actual substance. Yeah, it's more of like an Asimov-y yeast paste something yeah yeah when they've got similar thing in the fifth element with like the microwave that makes food and i think she like sprinkles something onto the plate then she puts the plate into the thing and it comes out as a full roast chicken yeah that's mm. right and they do something really similar in back to the future too oh yes yeah, they have the rehydrating mm. pizza and they compliment her like on her yeah her, her cooking mom skills. Sure knows how to rehydrate a pizza it's small <laughs> and it's like looks so delicious um and then there's that gross stuff that ray has as well with her rations in um, oh, yeah. the force awakens right? a great practical effect with a bread yeah, sort of inflates so and that's not cgi like apparently they yeah made it. Yeah, that's... yeah so good god i love that movie anyway so the gnomes have future food uh, not that we find out that much about it, mm. but it's, but it, yeah. And they have a shiny, shiny, cool spaceship, yeah. which they use to find frogs on a bromeliad. Yeah. I feel like this was a, like a, like it is like a grand romantic gesture mm. for masculine, but I do feel like it's perhaps a little bit of a waste of the resources, particularly yeah. given that like all of the gnomes back at the quarry have not been having a great time. Yeah. And this is where, when I said, I wanted to talk about how long it's been, um, 
it feels like this is like kind of nonstop and doesn't take more than maybe a day or two. Mm. But in um, diggers, it feels like a lot longer time has passed. And the only time that that extra time seems to fit in is when they're looking for the frogs in the bromeliad. Yeah. And I'm like, how long did you spend doing this, Masculine? So, in actual fact, they could have just like whizzed back and saved so, everybody like an awful lot of trouble. But yeah. then they would have saved Nicodemus and that would have been a problem later. That's true. So, like... By waiting, they kind of solved a problem by everyone suffering a little mm. to stop everyone suffering a lot later, <laughs> which they couldn't possibly have known. No. Gnome, but um, <laughs> but it, narratively, it, that's how it worked. I think yeah. it worked out for the best out of two not great scenarios, which you wouldn't have been able to foretell beforehand. Mm. But I also do think it's pretty rude of him to be like, oh, no, we've done all this stuff and now we're going to go on my mission for like yeah. two months. And I do feel like Grimm, like if he just gone back and said, I'm really sorry for being kind of a jerk. I understand what you meant about I, the frogs. Yeah, I get now. what you mean now. I totally understand. And I want to come with you on this journey that we're both going to have of exploration together mm. um, instead of just telling you that we're going to get married. I yeah. also don't know how green their gas is, but like it does sound like a bit of a, a climate bad yeah. activity to like ride your spaceship <laughs> all around the world for like a while and dig up plants. I yeah. assume that if they've got like anti-gravity and stuff, that they've got like clean fusion energy or something. I don't know. Is that, is that unreasonable? Well, I mean, it has been like sitting on the moon for a really long time. So, yeah, I assumed that it must be in some way renewable or else it would have gone bad by now. Yeah. I also feel like there are lots of kinds of bromeliads that are not that particular one with frogs in. And, like, couldn't he have just given her a pineapple? Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. he'd be like, did you know that a pineapple is also a bromeliad? Here you go. Also, I get it. I'm sorry. That would have been cute. I missed you. Yeah. But it's also not clear how much of the time they spend looking for the frogs and then how much of the time they spend trying to figure out where the quarry is. Because yeah. that also takes them a while, I think. And, um, you know, then they start flying all around the UK and there's all these, you know, alarming reports of like a spaceship has been seen in this place and that place. Yeah. Uh, and they're flying around. And like- Anglo's just trying to like drive it down the tube. He's like, I stopped at the stop sign. <laughs> but like rationally, you got a Concorde there because they end up following one. But like the thing can talk to computers. It can be like, okay, so where do Concords go? We'll go back to... Yeah, they well, they do mm. end up doing that. But they, they do that because that. they happen to find a Concorde. They don't sort of go, okay. Oh, yeah, they follow it. Yeah. 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 It literal- feels to me like the thing probably could have, like, triangulated the yeah. the thing. But, again, it's not allowed to take over unless they ask it to, yeah. I guess. Uh, but, yeah, so but they follow the Concorde bath, which is like a frightening, like, yeah. come mm. on, guys, leave the Concorde alone. Um, and then that bit where they describe it as speeding up to try yes. and get away with it. <laughs> it's like, oh, no. <laughs> uh, but they get back to the quarry. They save everybody. And then you know the the big bit at the end is what are we going to do now? Yeah. And they decide well we're gonna we're gonna go and find ourselves a new home, which is the only way we'll be safe. But both, I, it's two of them have the idea. Gerda has this thought. I think Masklin has the thought as well. I, I don't think it occurs to Angelo, but they they think this doesn't just belong to us. We now know there's other gnomes. It belongs to them too. What are we going to do about it? Should we stay and try and find them? Should we leave? And they decide that they're going to leave, but they're going to come back. And that's when Gerda makes his big decision. His great sacrifice. And I, I just love this so much. He's like, no, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to find as many other gnomes as I can and tell them that the ship is coming back for them and tell them the truth about where we're Spread from. Spread the word of the second coming, which will get adulterated over several generations. Yeah. yeah. But it's just a really fascinating look at the good intentions and truth of like the first stage or something like that. Mm. And it's a bit, you know, it reminds you talking about them those first master episodes of the new Doctor Who. It's a bit like the bit where Martha walks the earth for like I can't remember how long. It's like a year or two, spreading the story of the Doctor so that that can be, 
you know, their salvation, mm. um, which is a bit, it's a bit on the nose. Like it's, it's a bit like everybody claps their hands and believes in fairies and he yeah. turns into Jesus or something. It's, it's, it's a bit over the top, mm. but it does work, you know, and there's, and there's a real sacrifice made to make it happen. And in the same way, good is like, yeah, you, you can't just come back and take people. They've got to be ready. They've got to know. Mm. And so. he's um, like that, that sort of that culmination of his journey from, you know, from blind faith to crisis of faith and then to sort of becoming like a, a humanist or a, a gnomist, I guess, that, that he's realized that the most important thing is not believing in the thing. It's doing whatever it takes to ensure the good of your people. Yeah. And there's something very, very beautiful and very kind of, Pratchety about that of mm. the idea that like people are more important than anything you can believe in. Yeah, yeah, and he and Pion head off, and they're gonna fly some geese. I guess I, I who knows? I mean, I hopefully that works out for mm. them. But you know, I I I kind of would I would love to read again some short stories about their mm. adventures. Like mm. that would be fascinating to see what all the different um, societies and and groups of gnomes are like all over the world. And, and then how far they spread. I imagine like the the space gnomes coming back to pick them up, you know, maybe a few years later and him just like emerging out of the wilderness, just being like Rambo, just like being like amazing and strong and powerful and like having this incredible following of people and yeah. Like a really gnome w- from every like different gnome group. Yeah. And that he will have like united them under this banner of like hope and truth and that he will have just like, it will have been the making of him. Yeah. Mm. I wonder if a fleet would come back. You know, yeah, maybe because there's, a, there's a lot of gnomes, and it's not it's not quite clear how much the store gnomes fill up the ship, but it's kind of intimated that there's enough room for them all, but it's a little bit squashy. Mm. So yeah, I don't know, but it's, but the ship is massive, particularly by gnome standards. Yeah, so. I kind of felt like it must be sort of half empty because mm. it, it does seem very big. Yeah, yeah, and they're just some, sort of figuring out where they got to go. And surely some gnomes wouldn't want to go; like they'd be happy staying on Earth because like the ones with the geese seem pretty. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think I think all the store gnomes are happy to go because it's it's much more like the store. Well, they don't have a place either, whereas mm. some have carved out a place. Yeah, yeah, and and some of them might choose to stay behind, and that's that's fine. Mm. But at least they know they've got the option. And yeah. perhaps that they, you know, over the years can can sort of bring back enough technology so they will be able to communicate between those two places so mm. that if they ever do need extraction for some kind of reason, then they can call on them. And then they set up a Stargate and it's a crossover episode yes. and it's really good. Yeah. And I, you can just see, like, if, if they'd be continued, that it could – it's one of those points where it's like this is like an alternate history moment where these gnomes, when they come back, like humans now know they're definitely aliens mm. – they're going to be ready when the aliens come back to try and communicate with them. And, you know, the, the aliens behaved kind of weirdly and maybe destroyed a few things accidentally, but they didn't seem hostile. So hopefully that has an impact on human culture. Do the gnomes decide, you know, that they're going to try and talk to humans now, the ones who want to stay behind? Do the gnomes who come back in their ship want to communicate with humans? Like mm. there's so many things that could happen and just take the story in just crazy ways. Yeah, yeah. But I, I also think this is a really satisfying ending for mm. the story of the gnomes that we've met, that they're off on an a bigger adventure and we don't need necessarily to see that as much as fun it would be to see bits of it mm. and um, where they're going they don't need wings mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah um which brings us to the end of the book so it, i guess it's time to talk about our favorite bits are there any any quotes any uh, footnotes and we should note this one does have footnotes mm. which is unusual for uh, Pratchett's younger reader books that are in chapter form, but it, and it doesn't have heaps, but it's got a few. Uh, Liz, you, you've got a favourite? Take me to your larder. Mm. Oh, yeah, it's so good. <laughs> oh, the thing making a pun, and it's just so perfect in the moment, and it's just very good. And the way that it describes it, do you want me to read the description of yeah, the joke? Yeah, absolutely. What is that? 
Oh, fruit and nuts and meat and stuff, said Masculine. I think they've been watching me to see what I eat. I think these are quite bright humans thing. I put into my mouth and they understood I was hungry. Ah, said the thing. Take me to your larder. <laughs> Pardon? I will explain. I have told you that I monitor communications all the time. There is a joke. That is, a humorous anecdote or story known to humans. It concerns a ship from an... And he just explains the joke in great detail. And it's just... Yeah, it's brilliant. Uh, and I've seen that I've seen that cartoon. Like, it's usually a Dalek talking to, like, a petrol a pump mm. or a dustbin or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's great. Yeah. Very funny. Well, the one where they, they um, are talking to a cat? Yes. <laughs> yeah. There's a, uh, there's a children's TV show on the ABC called The Flugels, which basically is just that gag. All the time, and it's great. Uh, and it's like the yip yip aliens from, yes, from Sesame, Sesame Street, Street as well. And they always, yeah, they just try to speak to the telephone like it's a person. They always look so anxious. Yeah, well, they are. Well, I guess, yeah, yeah. But they've got frog vibes, but maybe it's because it's like mip mip yip yip. Mm. <laughs> yeah, 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 they do sound like the pressure frogs. I, I, there was sort of like a prescient joke, like a joke that I don't think would have been a joke when he wrote it, but it's a joke now where when they're talking about how when the thing is really interested in something, it opens up and extends a small silver dish or a complicated arrangement of pipes, which just reminded me of uh, that politician who said that the internet was a series of tubes. Um, (laughs) And this has to predate that, but it just, yeah. I think it does. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. I quite liked uh, one of the early exchanges with the thing. All my favorite bits in this book uh, involve the thing mm. when they're in the airport and masculine after, you know, threatening the thing and saying like, come on, do what I tell you. And then they're going to leave it behind. Uh, the thing made a little electronic noise, which was the machine's equivalent of a gnome clearing his throat. How can I be of assistance? It said. <laughs> uh, but then they ask him, they say, fine grandson, Richard Arnold 39. He said, this will take a long time. <laughs> said the thing. Oh. A few lights moved on the thing's surface. Then it said, I have located a Richard Arnold, age 39. He has just gone into the first-class departure lounge for a flight 205 to Miami, Florida. That didn't take a very long time, said Masculine. It was 300 microseconds, said the thing. That's long. I <laughs> <laughs> just like how it does have that alienness about it, but it's so polite and nice all the time. Mm. I like when um, Greta sees Grandson Richard on the, on the plane and he's trying to confirm if it is him. Gerda reached into his robe and pulled out the picture of grandson Richard. Even in the dim light of the pipe, Masculine recognized it as the human in the seat. He hadn't got creases on his face from being folded up, and he wasn't made up of hundreds of tiny dots, but apart from that... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was great. I had a, um, I'm had a really big fan of the podcast The West Wing Weekly, and they have this thing where you know something from the West Wing politics conflicts very greatly with current politics, which they call a Trump III moment. And I had a Trump III moment when uh, the thing is talking about Florida, and he says, yes, this country traditionally welcomes immigrants. And I was like, Trump III. Oh, no. mm. Yeah, traditionally. Yeah. I think even then that was probably a slightly pointed comment. Mm, yes, I'm sure it was. Uh, but that was great, yeah. Well, I think that's all of our favorite bits. Um, if you've got any listeners, of course, feel free to tell us about them. But we did get a few questions. So, Liz, what, what are the questions that we've got about wings? So, we've got a couple from Steve Leahy, which is, first of all, why wings? To follow from previous books, shouldn't it be flyers? And two, why switch quotes from the Book of Gnome to a scientific encyclopedia for the inquiring young gnome? Were events of wings whitewashed from gnome history? So these are very good questions. They are good questions. With the second one, isn't it a different book? Doesn't... Um Anglo say, like, I want to write a science book, not like the Book of mm. Gnome, but like I want to write a new book that's about science. Yeah, and I felt that was very that, – like that's that's indicative of the transition of Gnome society now, that mm. they're going from just like 
uh, Goethe has from this sort of superstitious belief in a human figure as like a deity into, oh, well, now we've reconnected with our past. We're actually very technologically advanced and we can figure out how to fly a spaceship and, and all the stuff that works on it. So we're transitioning from a religious viewpoint to a scientific one. Um, not that the two can never go hand in hand, but yeah, I, I felt like it was representative of that transition. Mm. Also, I think Pratchett was probably tired of writing those jokes and wanted to write some different ones. And there are some, there are some great ones, like even the first one, Airports. A place where people hurry up and wait, mm. <laughs> and you couldn't you couldn't put that into uh, a religious text parody. So it's just nice to get these little snippets of direct definitions from gnomes about what stuff in the human world is like. Yeah, I really liked that. Yeah. As for um, whether why it should be wings and not flyers, I kind of well, I like that. Flyers be- is kind of a not a great word for a start. Yeah, nobody calls them flyers. No. And you wouldn't you can't really call them pilots because they don't drive the thing. And flyers mean something else, like paper advertisements in your letterbox. Yeah. yeah as any comedian uh, listening will <laughs> readily uh, identify. And there's also so many, like I like that there were so many different modes of transportation that all flew. Um, you know, that there's the spaceship and there's the geese and there's the helicopter and there's the Concorde. Um and they all have wings of one sort or another. Except they don't really because a helicopter, neither the helicopter nor the spaceship mm. have wings. So it is yeah. kind of a good point. Um, I, guess, I guess that's true. person in me who likes things to match up very much agrees with that. I think logically I'd like it to be flyers, but in terms of sales, in terms of how it sounds, in terms of not being ambiguous, I think wings works better. Mm. Mm. Plus then you'd accidentally get extra sales from people thinking they're buying a Paul McCartney album. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder if Tony Robinson has made a lot of money off that <laughs> through his, uh, his audiobook version. Um, yeah, that's a good point. And, of course, these days you often find it published as a trilogy, mm. as a complete book. Um, although there's some great editions. Uh, I saw one in the library uh, on the weekend uh, of Truckers. There's a more recent one that's only come out in the last few years um, with all new illustrations. Mm. And I don't know if they've done all three. I've only seen Truckers in that format. No, Wings is, is in that too. Yeah, I, I actually really I really want to get those. They look really good. Mm. Um, and the illustrator, there's this whole, I don't think it's the same person who does the David Williams books who illustrates that. No, it's that. not Tony Ross. It's um, not Tony Ross. It's somebody else. But there's this whole, uh, I kind of love that there's this whole style now that several people do that looks a lot like Quentin like Blake. Quentin Blake, mm. yeah. Clearly inspired by well, him. And I just love that kind of sketchy, I feel like looking, where I'm reading a David Williams book to my kid at the moment and the 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 first one he brought out was illustrated by Quentin Blake, right. and then all of the other ones are now Tony Ross. And I kind of feel like if I was Quentin Blake looking at those illustrations, I'd be like, I feel like that's my turf. Mm. I don't know. Like they're so similar. I showed yeah. them like to my mom, and she was like, "No, that's just Quentin Blake." I'm like, "It's not. It just looks a lot like it." But mm. yeah, I think the guy who's illustrating it is someone different. Um, it was oh. on the cover of my ebook version. I wonder if that's been handed over to. Um like if there's been a handing of the torch, like Quentin Blake's like, I don't really want to keep doing any illustrations anymore. Maybe, I'm happy for other people to now. continue in my style. Yeah, because he's been doing it for 30, 40 years, mm. if not longer. Yeah, okay. Well, I, any other thoughts about flyers versus wings? I mean, and if not flyers, like is there another thing you could call it that would match like, truckers and diggers? Aviators, but it's too grown up. For, as in like I don't doubt that there's children who understand it, but tonally it sounds mm. different from truckers and diggers. Mm. But... I kind of like that that it's like a single syllable. Like it feels mm. like a full stop at the end of Truckers, Diggers, Wings. Yeah. Mm. I, I find it quite a satisfying title in that way. Yeah, whereas Truckers, Diggers, Aviators doesn't have quite so – it's not yeah. so poetic. Yeah, yeah. And Truckers, Diggers, Flyers, like then you would expect there to also be like 
floppers it's, it's mariners like mm. i don't know like boaters yeah. sailors <laughs> yeah yeah on oh, no, uh, a boat is a type sink- of hat so we're just going yeah. into the inanimate object series sinkers maybe if they went to the bottom of the ocean i don't mm. know did we have another question liz yeah we did so this one is from danny sag it was on facebook however does anyone even know what a concord is anymore wow. this came off a longer comment but um, and the answer is yes and it's liz yeah yeah and boy oh boy do i have a facebook album to share with you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i'm excited about this but yeah, like I was always a little bit fascinated with the Concorde as a kid because, you know, obviously we never saw any in Australia. Oh, I think they did come to Australia once or twice. It was my dream to ride one for a long time because I, I had very specific dreams as a child. Like you have your normal childish dreams. And I, was, I had two other ones, which was I want to own a colour printer and I saved up money to buy a colour printer, which I never bought because my parents eventually bought one before I saved up enough money. And the other was to ride on a Concorde, which I never technically did either. So... I mean, I guess this is an existential crisis I'm having. Oh, no. Now. No. Um, but yeah, I always went on, on one. And I'm not sure if I knew about them before the parent trap or or not. I think I did. But I think a lot of people would know it from the parent trap, which still does the rounds of TV. Mm. It was certainly never a dream of mine. My only aviation-related dream was that the first time I ever flew on a plane, I was six years old and we went to China. And I just spent the whole flight looking out the window in the clouds trying to spot Care Bears. And I was like, just deeply, profoundly disappointed that I didn't see any. Oh, that is a disappointment. That's also just so nice. I'm not. Yeah. It's cute, though. <laughs> That's very cute. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what do you tell your child in that situation? If, like, did you. I, I don't feel like, I don't recall communicating that to my parents, um, but I imagine they would have just been like, oh, well, you know, you never know. Maybe they're hiding. Like, that's what I'd say to my kid. Yeah, I'm like, they're very shy and maybe they can hear the aeroplane coming and they go somewhere else because it's too noisy. Yeah. Oh. Giving them a Care Bear scare. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, also, sad. as a sidebar, rewatched the Care Bears movie with my kid the other day and it holds up surprisingly well. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, what about, no, I, I cried it. at multiple points. Whoa. Do you have debating whether or not to watch the my little pony movie to see if that holds up mm. well because i remember it being very good yeah and i don't want that to change yeah i don't I, I a lot of things that i watched as a kid did not hold up very well yeah um, the original transformers movie the animated one still pretty good like it's a victory of style over substance for the most part but mm. it's just got so many bonkers ideas in it and it's just a voice cast who just, just why are you voicing transformers this is weird um so that's quite that's quite a trip i don't know that many other things Oh, look, you know, the Henson movies. Yeah, like, like anything that Jim Henson did holds up. Yeah, all the Muppet movies, they all they all hold up. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about cartoon stuff, though. I'm a bit frightened. I'm pretty sure that Rock Lords, the movie, does not hold up. Mm-hmm. Or Rock Lords versus Machine Men or whatever yeah. the film Yeah, and there's a lot was. of that stuff that we just can't visit, revisit now because things have changed. Yeah. Just too much. Yeah. It's good to change because things in many ways have changed for the better. Yeah. Um, maybe not at, a, at, a, at the top scale, but I think culturally. The uh, arc of the universe bends towards justice. Yeah. Yeah. Do, you, do Concord still crop up in songs? Like, is it, it's a word that rhymes with a lot of things. I don't think so. But, I mean, I guess that reflects how in the public subconscious it is. Yeah. Like, how much it pops up in pop culture, and it hasn't really in a long time. Mm. But I feel like when the 90s becomes that cool thing to revisit, like the 80s and like all decades do, they're probably going to have a resurgence of interest. I know that they're around in the 80s, but I also feel like visually they're 90s. Yeah, yeah, you'll Mm. be able to buy, because 90s stuff is just popping up everywhere now. Like when I go to Cotton on Kids, uh, you know, I can buy a Friends t-shirt for my four-year-old. Oh my Um, God, it blew my mind when people started wearing those like plastic chokers again. Yeah. used to get like in show bags or like that. Yeah. So any day now you'll be able to go to like Kmart and they'll be selling a Concord t-shirt. Mm-hmm. And I will be buying it. <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. 
Um, Lily, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. And coming on to talk about wings. Now, you've you've got a, a new book coming out later this year. It's your second ever picture book. Yes. It's, Love a picture book. And, Someone else does half the work. <laughs> <laughs> and this one's about, it's about an Australian native animal, the yep, quokka. It is about a quokka. It's about a quokka called Clancy. Um, never was there a more Australian picture book. No. Um, he likes cake. <laughs> I can identify with them already. Yeah, and it rhymes. It's super funny. It's incredibly cute. Okay. All right. We'll keep an eye out for Clancy the Quokka. That's coming out later in 2019. Uh, yeah, in October. Um, and your most recent young adult novel mm-hmm. is After the Lights Go Out. What's that about? Uh, it's about the daughter of a doomsday prepper um, during an actual kind of end of the world style disaster. Wow. Yeah, it was, that also was very fun to research. My Pinterest feed is bonkers. <laughs> is this is this why you have a series of videos called Let's Talk About Sect? No, that was actually for my previous book, uh, which was called The Boundless Sublime, which was about a girl who got sucked into a cult. And that was just out of my total obsession with cults and new religious movements and all things. I grew up in quite a culty family. Um, oh, wow. And, yeah, so the series and the book kind of, yeah, all sprang from that particular fascination, which is why this book, which is why Wings was, you know, very um, in my wheelhouse because there is something super culty about, um, you know, the store and, you know, Brother Richard and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, um, we'll be linking to your website and your social media. So if you want to check out uh, Let's Talk About Sex, that's a great series of videos about various different cults and um, what else would you call them? What's the other term? New religious movements, which is Uh, a nice way of saying cults. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, so you do check those out. They're amazing. And check out uh, Lily's books, After Lights Go Out, Clancy the Quokka. And you, you've written like, what, like a dozen books? So yeah. many books. Twelve. Yeah, that's My favourite is Green Valentine. So Thanks, Liz. I learned so much gardening from that, which I know is not the point. No, no, it kind of was but the point. As, as in, like, I took away the plot and I enjoyed the characters, but I was also like, I'm going to go. Which I, actually, you know, you're right. Of course you're right. It's your book. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I'm into that. Like any book there where I have a cool story, but also I learn things. Yeah. Really gardening. It's like, I didn't know that was a thing. Oh yeah. And I killed so many plants before. They're not on purpose, but I learned things like how to, like my plants don't die as much anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to write a book about gardening because I was doing a lot of gardening and I said to my partner, I'm like, I want to write a book for teenagers about gardening, but I want to make it sexy. And he was like, well, that sounds like a career ending decision. <laughs> um, but you know, I feel like I might've pulled it off. And there was a significant Eurasian character so i felt very very represented good yeah that's cool all right well look uh, we'll be back next time of course but before we get on to what book we're going to do next time we just want to just want to give a quick shout out to everyone thank you to all our supporters um who've been helping us out uh by subscribing to the podcast that really helps us cover all the bills and uh, and do more and we do want to apologize that we were hoping to get the uh, Trollbridge live show out before this episode came out. We've been unfortunately a little bit delayed, but I'm going to make sure that it comes out before our next episode because it will actually tie in quite nicely to our next book. Because Liz, next month, what are we discussing? Well, next month we're going to have some interesting times. We, we absolutely are. And we'll meet a character in that book who uh, is also featured in Trollbridge, Colin the Barbarian. I know, it's pretty exciting. Um, and who have we got as a guest for that? Uh, David Writing from the City of Literature. Oh, yeah. So I think that's going to be that's going to be a great episode. But we've just had one. So thanks again, Lily. You're welcome. Thanks, Liz. And look, um, until next time we meet. Well, actually, you know, I just I feel like we need to say something else because this is it. This is the end of the gnomes. It's the first time we've come to an end of a series on Pratt Chat, not including any of the individual books. It's a triumph. It, it, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is a triumph. Thanks, Liz. You're welcome. You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Lily Wilkinson. 
Pratchat is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via PratchatPodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat20. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Star Trek podcast Rediscovery and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.